<laughs> Didn't explain this Hello, very well. Hello, friends, and welcome once again to Radio Moorport, the podcast where we discuss Terry Pratchett's Disc World series one book at a time. Ranking, rating, reviewing, analyzing, rambling, and uh, more often than not arguing as well. Today we are here to discuss the final book in the Discworld series, The Shepherd's Crown. I am Colm. I am joined as ever by Steve from Japan. Steve from Japan, as opposed to Steve from Korea. And uh, for this special occasion, we have brought back the uh, original Radio More Porcos, the Thinking Man Steve, if you will. <laughs> It's Rose from Ireland. Hey! She doesn't even need a gimmick like you, where you went all the way to Japan just so it would sound fancy on a podcast. <laughs> it's the only reason anyone would ever listen to me, honestly. <laughs> this is the first time we've all been back together since Mort. It's been a long, long time now, actually. No, no, no we, we done uh, we done the, the truth. Going Postal. Oh, that's... Oh, no, Going Postal, sorry. Yeah. That's right, we did. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's in my same pandemic notebook. I've been keeping a journal randomly, and... It's it's mostly journal ramblings, and then every once in a while, I decide to do a writing prompt, and then in the middle of it all, there's interlude, radio more port, going postal, and just a bunch of notes going postal. It's it's that, that kind of side adventure in the middle of a big saga that has no overall relation to the plot. You know, yes. your your personal pandemic journey. It's it's this little you know kind of a bit shoved in in the middle. Yeah, my side quest. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, it's great to have you back, um, and I'm, I'm sure I speak for the listeners in saying that as well. And it's it's very fitting to kind of uh, bring it to a close this way. It feels like a million years ago, <laughs> I leaned over to you in that um, little kind of basement karaoke room at Steve's birthday when Steve was warbling out something on a mic and said, do, do you know what podcasts are? Do you want to do something on Discworld or something <laughs> to that effect? <laughs> And that that is kind of we've come a come a long way since then. Well, that's remember right. that's exactly when that conversation happened. God, <laughs> yeah. this is like podcasts were new at the time, were they? <laughs> <laughs> it was a long I, time. I don't know. Had had serial happened? Like that's kind of when podcasts went mainstream, wasn't it? You know, once serial happened, and and like that that was when. Uh, and I shouldn't really be saying this at the age I am, but like. I did still did the phrase look up to my head. That was when the adults in your life knew about podcasts. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know and it start getting mentioned in like newspapers and like uh, you know supplements and uh, like things like that. It was like, oh, you know, podcasts they're 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 sort of a thing now. They're not um, they're respectable. <laughs> I think the journey towards their respectability was hindered by our progress. Our uh, <laughs> uh, doing a podcast. <laughs> Held the whole medium back. <laughs> well, if we've achieved anything with this podcast, at least, you know, we'll ha- we've made our mark in history somehow, even if it only is, like, to drag the good name of podcasting down the tubes. <laughs> so, when we first started this, we, we talked about how we had first discovered Discworld um, and, and our, our initial thoughts on it. And I believe we asked you about that when you were on uh, the Mort episode for the first time, Steve. So, I suppose now, having been through all of the books for the series, it's worth asking how... I suppose how how are taking the long term view and asking how our opinions of Discworld has changed over time and what long term influence it's had on us since those you know those first baby steps into it when we were uh, children or, or teenagers or whatever. Well, for me personally, my opinion of Discworld hasn't really changed at all. It's it's still for me one of the greatest book series ever written. 
I know it might not seem like that for anyone who listens to the podcast regularly. I know we could tr- critique it so much and poke so Definitely m- not anyone who listened to the last episode. <laughs> the the amount of holes we poke into things and like the flaws that we always point out. I mean, yes, it's it's interesting that we've been able to lay them bare and that we can look at it with an analytical and critical eye and say here are some problems that with with this book series that are semi-consistent throughout and individual books also have individual problems as well but despite that I still come away from it feeling the same sense of incredible respect and admiration for the book series that I had when I went in it's just now I'm aware of the flaws and I know they're there kind of in a little side pocket over here but it doesn't change how I feel about the series overall how about you Rose yeah I think I'd agree to be fair it's such a huge collection of work and I I know we talked about this before but I started the Discworld with Nightwatch I came into it really late because I stumbled across Nightwatch in the section of the library the tiny sci-fi and fantasy section of the library and it's probably what got me into fantasy just the whole world of Terry Pratchett and humor fantasy got me into fantasy as a whole. But then I went and I read every one of his other works that I could get my hands on in every bookshop I went into for like a year after I go straight for the Terry Pratchett section and see what they had that I hadn't found yet. So I think, no, I just kept appreciating it over time. Like it just, you would think with as many novels as Terry Pratchett produced in his lifetime that they would lose impact over time, but they really don't. Even going back and rereading any that I have reread over this podcast, they still hold up as well. Like, they're just incredible. Colin? Yeah, I, th- I think for me, it's it's the variety of it that jumps out to me. Like, obviously, Pratchett has, uh, you know, his, his writing style evolves, but there's still a sort of core Pratchettian quality about it that you can draw the line from Colour of Magic, True Shepherd's Crown. And there's, uh, you know, there's recurring ideas, like we've talked before, but one of the best things about him as a writer albeit occasionally frustrating, is that he isn't afraid to revisit an idea when he feels there's more to be mined there or when he feels he can do it better. And there's certainly, like, recurring character archetypes he likes to uh, revisit. Like, with someone like, say, Tiffany, who's, who's the, the lead character of the book we'll be discussing here, you can see elements of Esk and even more than even kind of some of the, you know, sort of the uh, precocious person living in a small town who seems a bit out of place that, that he's dealt with before. But despite all that, there's just this enormous variety in ideas and tone and themes of what he deals with and I I can't really do this justice in words but it's like when I look back over right above me now on the shelf is is all of the, the Discworld books I've got and when I look at them and think of you know pluck one out think of it individually it's sort of like like colors and moods that come into my head that are particular to that book it's a very vivid feeling it's like trying to you know clutch at a dream that felt very strongly while you were having it but you can't quite grasp it in the waking world because the magic was was in the dream and it's like that the magic's in the book so i'm not doing a great job of of being able to put it into voice what it is but it's just kind of impressive when i think about it and it, it comes up a lot when um we get into these like arguments at the end about where to rank them and it's such a frivolous activity anyway at this stage you know all it's doing is helping us distinguish us from the other really good discord podcasts that are out there <laughs> we're the idiots who rank things but uh part of what makes those discussions interesting and difficult is you start like weighing up two of the books in your head and while you can't find commonalities there's just so 
I suppose so, just key differences in what what he's trying to do and what he's often succeeding in doing with either one. That yeah, that's that's I, I can't quite put it into words, but it's that kind of variety of of scope and with such vivid realization that does it. And I think he as much as like I I think it was a uh, it was either. James Joyce or George Borges or someone else who I haven't remembered who said it, who made the, disti- uh, the distinction between readerly texts and writerly texts and I think that, I know I've heard it with specifically with reference to Ulysses by James Joyce that it's a, like it's a writerly text you you read it and if you're a writer you're kind of blown away by how he's switching between literary modes and you know ideas and so on whereas like maybe something just like kind of a good story is more like a readerly text. It's just something you you read without that professional eye to detail. And some of like I'm you know I I write I think we all do really to to varying degrees of productivity and success. So I think we all approach the stuff we read now depending on how you're feeling in both a readerly way and a, and a writerly way. And I, when I think about it, my favorite writers are the ones that you can get a lot out of from both sides of it, you know? And if if you want to make a really kind of... This is a binary distinction so broad that it, it probably wouldn't stand up to any scrutiny. But if you kind of set it between heart and head and, like, when when you approach these things in a readerly way and there's these like wonderful ideas and concepts that fill you full of that kind of like childlike wonder and you know like instinctive emotional reaction to characters and events in the stories versus the kind of writerly head logic side where you see something happening like a recurrence of a motif or a particular twist in a character's journey and you're just blown away by the craft of it and by the kind of melding together of ideas and I think my favorite writers are the ones where when I think of why I like those their books, I think of both of those qualities, both like kind of readerly heart stuff and writerly mind stuff. And Pratchett's certainly one of those. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Mm, yeah. Very good answer. Rose, when you said that you first got into it, when you first read Nightwatch, uh, something that I only discovered just this week and it it kills me that I didn't know this my brother was telling me that um, he has a signed copy of Nightwatch in his bedroom and I never knew it was there and it kills because um, if you look at the list now that we have and I don't think it's going to change after this podcast but Nightwatch is the number one book that we both mutually agreed it's just like the best Discworld book and the fact that what we agreed to be the best one and actually signed by Terry Pratchett is in my old house and I never <laughs> knew it was there. And the worst thing is I should have known because we have two copies, the exact same copy of Nightwatch and I never questioned, why do we have two? I don't know. I could have looked and I would have seen it and I, oh, it kills me that I, I never knew he, that. He just kept giving you the other one every time. <laughs> yeah, <that's laughs> can it. I borrow Nightwatch? You can borrow this Nightwatch. <laughs> the not good one. <laughs> yeah. The other one is on like, like not even on a bookshop, on an altar over to one side of his room. <laughs> on, on its own, you know, in, in an airtight case. You can't borrow that one. No, they're just side don't by side, but, but because my uh, my head moves so fast, I just think no, that's just one book and it, it, there's not two of them there my head just like blurs in together <laughs> Nightwatch is a really big book mm. yeah it's mm. like twice the size of all of the others 
<laughs> I wondered when we were uh, recording on Nightwatch and you were like, you know, oh, this must have been hard for you having to buy two copies of the book to, to finish it properly. <laughs> uh, I asked why. <laughs> like, oh, doesn't everyone have two copies of Nightwatch? It's a time travel thing. Exactly. <laughs> this is the past version and the present version. <laughs> <laughs> Uh. <laughs> right, that's enough fun. Let's get to analysis. But first, let's get to summary. Um, so to talk about the events of uh, Shepherd's Crown, just to offer a refresher to anyone who's listening to this having not uh, read it in a while, how does it begin? Well, Granny Weatherwax dies. That was that was the the, the big uh, the, the big spot. I, I remember you, Steve, sent me a. a begun the summary and already diverted from the the, the purpose of doing it, <laughs> but. Uh, well, we were interviewing Mark Burroughs and we had read his uh, biography and Terry Pratchett, you sent me an email chastising me for not telling you that this spoiler was in the... Yeah, <laughs> in I, I didn't know this was coming. Which I felt very bad about. My, my, my assumption was that the year it came out, Octagon, which is a small kind of speculative fiction sci-fi fantasy convention in Ireland, we went to, to Octagon that year and they had like a kind of... You know, what it does, so I, I don't know what the name for it is, but when you had that kind of funereal altar, which is the frame picture of Granny Weatherwax with a candle, and I remember seeing it and being like, and I think we had started the podcast to this stage, so I had already decided I'm not going to read any of the ones I haven't read until we get there for the podcast, but instantly thinking, well, there's, you know, I know what happens at Shepherd's Crown anyway. Um, and I just assumed you had you had kind of been uh, had, had that spoiled for in the same way. But uh, we'll, we'll get to it in the analysis. I think it's very interesting knowing that coming in that it's something that happens at the very start of the book mm. rather than as a climactic event. Uh, but like like witches and and, and wizards, she knows her her death is coming. She makes her preparations for it and goes perhaps uncharacteristically, but in another way fittingly, quietly into that good night. And she designates Tiffany as her successor to essentially become the uh, the chief of the witches. And while this is going on, we have we have concurrent events that will be of note. One is we have Geoffrey, who's the youngest son of a kind of noble family run by a, a bigoted, grouchy patriarch who um, gets into a, a massive argument with Geoffrey when, when Geoffrey refuses to kill something on, on their, the first hunt he's brought on. So Geoffrey ends up leaving home he sees a witch fly over on a broomstick and he decides he's going to be a witch at the same time we have the elves of lords and ladies of uh, we free men and and, and various um, other books we have them there they're in kind of high spirits because granny weatherwax is gone the barriers between the worlds are weakening and then what happens steve so at this point now, uh, Tiffany has been given two steadings basically to look after, the chalk and Lonker. And she is going between the two of them and wearing herself, running herself absolutely ragged. And she knows already that she can't keep this up. So she asks, she hunts down Miss Tick and asks her to find her uh, basically an apprentice of some kind so, so that she can, you know, get some help in this. But... Before the girls that Mystic finds and is train, uh, before she's trained them up, she is approached by Jeffrey, who comes to Lanker, who says he wants to be a witch. This obviously is a bit unusual because although uh, Escarina in Equal Rights she wanted to, she became a wizard of sorts in that book. There's never actually been a male witch in uh, the Discworld series, so Tiffany kind of uh, takes him on for a little bit as. Uh, 
kind of a what, what was the name she gave him like a, a, a backhouse boy to kind of help around with some of the chores that goes on around Lonker and um, I think Nanny Og sees this and although initially when she sees him in the house she kind of gives a bit of a wink and a nod as Nanny Og is you know prone to do but she kind of approves uh, his inclusion into this witch hood thing at first um, then uh, Nightshade the queen of the elves is, she kind of decides to have a bit of a scouting mission into into the disc world and she she has a goblin captured and kind of show her uh, what what thing how things are and when when they go out into the disc world they see slash hear the train that was introduced in raising steam which of course is made of iron and the elves are adverse to uh, iron it's their kryptonite of sorts and so because this weakens oh sorry the goblin in question uh, throws some ballast i think at them and this injures quite a lot of the elves. And this is the point where Pe- uh, Peas Blossom, which is one of the Queen of the Elves' right-hand elves, kind of sets up a coup and be- kind of uh, seizes the power of the uh, the elves and expulses Nightshade uh, out of her- their kingdom before just uh, before ripping off her wings. So uh, what happens after that, Rose? I suppose the next thing is basically the finding of Nightshade in the realm of, of the Feagles, basically. Um, she's found by the Feagles by their mound. She's just a withered heap, basically. And the Feagles, they can smell elf. So they all rally, they clank their weapons together, they go running to attack, thinking that there's a crowd of elves on the horizon. And instead they're met with this one elf who is just a heap on the ground, bloodied, wingless. And they're not sure what to do because every impulse is to kill it with fire, but, you know, you can't really do that to an unarmed heap. So they take the elf in and Kelda questions her and they go and they bring Tiffany to see what Tiffany recommends that they do, having no idea what to do with this one terrible elf. And Tiffany arrives and questions Nightshade. There's a sort of a moral quandary here and Tiffany realises she's kind of on a on a path here, this is going to be a deciding factor what she does here so she questions Nightshade she talks to the Kelda and they decide that they can't just kill Nightshade they can't just kill the Queen they need to keep her alive and Tiffany decides she's going to try and help Nightshade for two reasons partially just because it's the right thing to do and she wants to teach the Queen you know what it would be like to be a little bit less elvish a little bit more human and teach her what how humans live and partially because they're aware by this point that the elves have started to do their little raids. You've got Peas Blossom, who is doing his little raids, and they've attacked a lumber yard. They have played pranks on the inns. They are uh, one of them went to take a changeling, essentially take a child away from its mother. Um, so the elves are becoming quite dangerous. And Tiffany is thinking, well, maybe it would be better to have the queen back in her rightful place if that means they can secure that kingdom the elf realm can just keep to itself and stop these raiding parties. So you get a little bit of a sense of Tiffany taking the queen around the place and showing her basically how humans live and, you know, a woman giving a couple of coins to a tramp, which completely boggles the mind of Nightshade because there's nothing in it for her and there's no reason why that woman should have done it. And you get the sense slowly that Nightshade is kind of coming around to slightly understand even just a little bit what Tiffany is talking about in terms of humanity. So you've got Nightshade coming around slowly. 
And then, Colm, do you want to take over? Sure. I mean, at, the, at that point, then, Tiffany has to rally the, the other witches to prepare for the uh, full incursion of the elves, which she, she knows through Nightshade, although she probably would have gathered anyways. You know, they're going to make an attack in force, having the uh, the, the business with the, the changelings and the, the ruining of the beer and the locally and being just sort of um, sallies or skirmishes to, in preparation of this, this bigger assault. So in doing this, she sort of has to fight for her authority a bit. You have most notably uh, Mrs. Awadge is is very skeptical of this young girl being the you know the new leader of the the witches, but she's able to win them round. She has Nanny Og and and McGrath on her side, um, as well as Letitia, the the Baron's um, Roland's wife, who's kind of a witch in training. Um, I was a little surprised at this point we didn't get a what's the other girl from. Uh, I shall wear midnight. Who gets beaten by her father at the start, and then the Kelda singles her out as being like a, yeah. a language savant. I, I thought she was going to be set up from that as like a kind of future witch. But whatever, mm. that's neither here nor there. Just because what we see in this moment that I bring it up is you kind of have a coming together of like any witch who's ever been mentioned in the Longer Witches or Tiffany's book comes up here, with the obvious exception of Granny Weatherwax, uh, who's who's died. But like all of the rest of them, I think uh, what's what's her name. Um, Agnes uh, is, is is mentioned. We have Tiffany's kind of uh, sort of fellow trainee, which is like uh, Petulia and um, oh, uh, <laughs> what's the name of the the one they don't get on with? Who then takes over Mrs. Um, Mrs. Treason's Miss Treason's cottage? Oh 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 ah uh, damn! That's it's yeah, it's, it's a, the, the bossy girl. Uh, based on her name as well. Uh, yeah, uh, you know who I mean. <laughs> but but yeah yeah yeah. So they're all there. They do manage to to uh, win them around. They kind of have a fight on two fronts against the elves in the chalk and in Lankra. Jeffrey rallies this these owl lads he's been talking with, um, and they've sort of a lot of them are very uh, handy mechanically speaking. So they kind of make devices for hurling ballast and iron at the elves and and that despair system there in the chalk. Peas Blossom comes out as a fight with Tiffany. Nightshade stands up to him and defends Tiffany. She's killed by Peas Blossom. Uh, Tiffany's able to, you know, is furious and, and kind of defeats Peas Blossom in, in response to this. And that kind of brings it to a close. Then at that point, Tiffany, having defeated the elves, is, feels a bit more sure of herself, a bit more comfortable in her skin, and is able to uh, nominate Jeffrey as the successor in Granny Weatherwax Stedding. And then she makes a uh, home for herself. She seeks the help of a local carpenter, not in making it, but in teaching her how to make it. And she sort of makes a kind of home on wheels, quite like uh, the one Granny Aching had at the... the well, we're, I suppose we never actually saw, seen her have it in the presence of any of the book, because she's, she's dead before We Free Men begins. But the one we're told about, the little house on wheels, up on the chalk plains, and we close, which is a really lovely bit of... Tiffany being up there and kind of being very much comfortable and at peace with her life and her duties as a, a witch going forward and that is that right yep. yep that's that's more or less it yeah um well we have a uh, before Peas Bottom uh, after, after Tiffany defeats Peas Bottom the king of the elves it should be noted that oh yes. at, at one point during uh the book before they she gathers all the witches she approaches the King of the Elves, uh, the Long Man, which is another thing that came up before in the Lords of Ladies book. And it's kind of a repeat of what Nanny Og did, where she tries to convince him to, you know, set 
his people straight. Uh, at the time, he doesn't really go for it, but after Tiffany defeats Peasbottom, he shows up and he kills Peasbottom uh, after when he finds out that Peasbottom has killed, I suppose, his wife. Technically, it would be his wife, isn't it? She is the queen, he yeah, is the king. Queen, so, yeah, yeah. yeah so um, he kills Peasbottom, and then they get a promise from Tiffany, gets a promise from the king uh, that they won't invade the the kingdom again of the Discworld of Lanka or anything like that. So, yeah, that kind of uh, sums up the book as a whole. Um, So, Elephant in the Room. This wasn't complete at the time of Terry Pratchett's death. And I think... I, I feel like I probably speak for everyone in that it does sort of show. There are some concepts that aren't fully explored... Personally, there's a couple of places where I've noticed a dip in quality of the writing, and it's it's kind of got a different flavor from the previous Tiffany books. But those are that's my two cents. What do you guys think? Did you would you feel similar? Yeah, I would. Anyway, to be fair, um, one of the big things that I noted in this book is that um, for for how big a role Nightshade has played in it. Um, she gets very little in the way of character development. You you really get this quick montage where Tiffany is like, here's what humans do. This is how humans evolved from monkeys. And humans do things out of kindness for others. And friends are a thing that exist. And Nightshade is just like, oh, are we friends? And Tiffany's like, yeah, we can be friends. And Nightshade's like, cool. I'll help you out. And it's very brief. Um, I really feel like for a character that is that integral, like she's she starts out and she should be the villain and by the end she's an ally and there's not really enough time spent on getting her there I felt I really mm. I really thought that she should have had just a bit more time a little bit more evolution she's also killed very unceremoniously uh, yes! I felt Sorry. like it's <laughs> no like it really like it's it it sort of comes out of nowhere Peasbottom just kills her and because we in 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 a strange sort of way it's kind of appropriate because as you said she's not given a lot of time to develop and as a result i don't think we're as invested in her as we should be and because she uh she's killed so unceremoniously we're not really given much time to really think on it too much which overall is just kind of disappointing i mean it's probably fitting in a way but it the whole thing could have been better personally in my opinion yeah, there's certainly there's certainly an underwritten quality about it. I think there's there's like uh, loose ends left hanging that yeah, and, and parts that you feel are set up for more that aren't. I would say just yeah, I I enjoyed a lot of what we got, mm. and it's hard like you're kind of graving or grading on a curve more with this one than with any of the others in like not only the decline of his health but in like the literal unfinished state of it. I mean, it's the only one where you have an afterword from Rob Wilkins explaining that he hadn't finished it, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and we, we talked at length at, at the end of our last episode, Steve Rosa, I don't know if you've heard it, yeah. but uh, yeah. I, in particular, I was very much down on, on Raising Steam, and at a certain stage, I felt like, you know, this really feels like kind of like kicking a puppy or something, like like me talking about this, uh, this fella write, writing something in the state of health he was that's still probably more than more than what, what I could write but the, the case I made to Steve was I was like well you know so long as he felt these were fit for publication we kind of uh, you know uh, oh we owe it to to that desire to talk about them accordingly and not you know give them this asterisk of like 
oh, well, this one's okay, I suppose, given the circumstances. But this is a much harder one in that regard because it's not just that his you know, health was declining. It's like literally just what you're seeing is a kind of a, a draft and a half as opposed to, you know, a finished book finished in, in whatever uh, state of cognitive health he was in. But having said that, I mean, there's a lot I like here. There's a lot I like that's there about in just like some flourishes in the writing and just in some of the ideas as as I flagged up in our summary I really thought it was an interesting and kind of brave choice to uh, kill Granny Weatherox right at the start mm. like mm. as I was saying we, we had this spoiled for us before going in and, and if you didn't know that you kind of think this is this like swan song climactic moment like Granny's death is kind of serving as a metaphor for the, the death of the author and the death of the series as a whole and to an extent it is but the fact that it happens at the start makes it I suppose serve a role that feels much more hopeful and much more about you know moving on and kind of taking stock of your legacy and your life than just being uh, an ending and nothing else uh, well what did you use to get that decision I 100% agree with you. Yeah, I think the, having it at the start of the book was a very brave move and it paid off dividends. And not only the fact that he chose to have it at the start of the book, it's beautifully written. Like the way he handles Granny Weatherwax's death scene and the way uh, Tiffany and Nanny Og take care of arrangements once she has died, that entire section is one of one part of the book that I felt like he was really, really, really on top of his game there. That like that. I if you ha- had hadn't told me that he was uh, enduring the embuggerance at this point, I wouldn't have noticed because I just thought it was excellent that particular part of the book. Um, what about you, Rose? Yeah, completely agree. And for me, the main thing I've written down, like the very first note I took on this book when I was trying to get all of my thoughts together, is that this book feels more than anything else like it's about legacy, mm. and that very much comes across because. It's it's not a book about Granny Weatherwax's death. It's about Granny Weatherwax's death and what happens after and what follows and what she leaves behind and what the world looks like and who's to step into that. And, you know, it's it's a big concept, but he does it very, very well. You know, you have Tiffany then trying to deal with, oh, this is what people expect of me now and I have these literal boots to fill and how can I do it and how can I follow in these footsteps and then eventually, oh, I need to find my own path and be Tiffany aching and be the witch of the chalk and that's who I am so it it becomes very much about legacy and identity and just value of human life and the whole purpose of witches in the world of disc just being people people that help and people that do what needs to be done and leaving that behind for somebody else to step into all of the witches rallying after Granny Weatherwax passes away as well and everybody uniting against a foe it's just yeah, it's about legacy, and it's really lovely, I thought. Yeah, there's a lovely bit here that just, I mean, it's something he's talked about before, but just serves as a perfect summation of the, the role of witches in the disc, and it says, uh, For a witch stands on the very edge of everything, between the light and the dark, between life and death, making choices, making decisions so that others may pretend no decisions have even been needed. And, you know, it's something he's talked about before, but again, like, if you're kind of, you're, summing this up and seeing it off and, and, and encapsulating it as something that will and needs to continue it's just very nicely done there's also a lovely line that sums Granny up as good as everything which says um, she says never one or no no sorry the narration notes 
never one to push herself forward. And there's a footnote saying she hadn't even ever needed to. Granny Weatherwax was like the prow of a ship. Seas parted when she turned up, <laughs> which <laughs> yeah, just sums her up really well, I think. And you know, it's it's funny. I I complained a lot in uh, Raising Steam about the the kind of tense of of the writing, particularly a lot of the the early bits with with Moist negotiating the railway is written in this sort of perfect tense where you as the reader feel like an extra step removed from what's going on. It kind of feels like it's already happened and it's very hard to get your teeth into it. Uh, There's, to an extent, the early stuff of Granny and and Jeffrey's kind of origin story have that, but they feel much more fitting here. They feel there's almost a fairy tale quality to like the, the distance between the reader and what's going on like there's this sort of sense of inevitability with you know granny accepting her own death but i don't know i suppose there's less immediacy to those scenes than there would be if you look back and just read you know any of the granny scenes in any of the previous slunker witch books or, or even her her uh her appearances in tiffany's and but it just sort of felt fitting here it feels kind of like a i i don't know like a like a fairy tale like something kind of magical and inevitable and because it's at the start too it's about what's what's coming afterwards Mm. i did read apparently that terry pratchett had i think neil gaiman uh said at one point that terry pratchett had planned to write a scene at the very very end of the book that explained that granny weatherwax had actually transposed her uh, consciousness into you the cat and once the book was finished then death would be able to take her and she'd say something along the lines of i'm leaving now on my terms and I'm a bit 50-50 on that because I, <laughs> the way it is now, like, I, I sort of feel like this gets a little bit ruined at the end by something I'll talk about later. But I think the fact that it's just implied, it's something that I think everybody suspected very, very early on, considering the way you behaves throughout the book, that there could possibly be, uh, you know, a bit of Granny Weatherwax in there. And I would have been very happy just to leave it at that. There's a bit of very heavy-handed on the noseness towards the end that I'm not overly fond of but if I could choose between that or this alternative hypothetical epilogue I probably would prefer that than what we actually got but the bit I'm talking about in particular is where um Tiffany asks uh, you the cat where oh, I'm trying to remember what she says something along the lines of where 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 is granny weatherwax and the response is meow everywhere or something, which felt like very lazy writing. I That part of the book, I really, really disliked. Um, and I'm, I'm hoping it wasn't Terry Pratchett himself who wrote it. Um, well, I mean, I, I think I think almost all of it's him, isn't it? It's just that like, he, you know, it's not all redrafted. She's far be it for me to compare my myself to 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 Terry Pratchett in any way writing wise, but you know just by by the dint of writing, there's comparison there. And I was conscious of this the other night when I was writing something that it was, you know, just the first draft of something. I was looking back, I was like, God, this is such you know such rubbish. Like I'm I'm really kind of uh, like it's really bare bones, and I'm really pulling a lot of shortcuts to get towards the end of this story. And I thought, well, it doesn't matter because no one's ever going to see it this way. I'm gonna you know. I'm building a skeleton here, and then I'm gonna, you know, put the put the muscles on later. Mm. So, I, I I think, in a in a first draft, based based on that experience of my own, and you hear other writers referring to it, you know, the the kind of stuff you put down is often just to get to the next bit, and unfortunately, because of the circumstances here, it's left in, so it does does read clunkier than you would expect of him. You know, done it's 
done certainly not something you would put in a in a finished book what what did you think of the the scenes when granny dies and you kind of get a like a, a, a textual montage of reactions around the disc world to to her passing you have people like Rid Coley and, and Veterinary and and others what what did you think of that I liked it to be honest um because Granny Weatherwax passing away is such a huge deal and it should be felt everywhere it's sorry um I don't know it feels like it should be felt everywhere and as a reader you kind of expect that you know it's such a big event that you read it and you go oh my god Granny Weatherwax has passed away and then you see oh, well of course you know Nanny Og would would feel it of course Magrat would feel it but not quite the same way of course and then Hex feeling it is kind of an odd one which I feel like unfortunately that's called back to later and it's not finished it's one of the loose ends of this book is when everything is resolved with the elves hex outputs a message and a word is underlined and i don't think they actually say what the message is just it's another little clip of a montage um but most of it felt very much like yep that should happen yep these people should feel it yep yep this should resound basically i i mostly agree um in particular i really liked uh rid cully the way i i like the way he showed up and it's a very very little ceremony he literally shows up pays his respects you can see emotion there and then he leaves it's like you said something i feel was necessary to be in there because that's exactly what i would expect to happen i'm less fond of veterinary uh reacting to it because it's 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 one of those things that makes the universe feel smaller in Discworld. Like I don't feel like he needed to acknowledge Granny Weatherwax's death. Like yeah, it's a very significant thing. Like within the Discworld because she was a significant player, but a large part of that would be in like the kind of magical realm of the Discworld. You know, like that kind of thing. Whereas Veterinary largely deals with politics, and I just can't really see many i mean it's not outside the realms of possibility that he would know about granny weatherwax because as i said she's a very you know significant uh person within within the disc world but i didn't really see the point of him thinking on us too much like it just it didn't gel with me um personally what about you colin it's funny rose i hadn't thought of it with hex but i kind of like it now that you mention it as a way of it's like the the new world marking the passing of the old, like the kind of role of the, the railway here to, that is sort of in the background, but it's a definitive message that like the time of the elves has passed. And here you have this kind of supercomputer essentially is, is still conscious of, um, I suppose these older pre-literate forms of knowledge that, that granny represents. So it's, 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 it's a nice touch. I agree with you, Steve, about veterinary. I, I didn't mind so much that he notes it as like, his discussion with Drumnot about who's going to succeed Granny hmm. feels odd to me because it's like they're discussing a matter of high politics, like who's going to be the next low king or something. And it always felt like like an underlying part of a lot of the witch books is the unofficialness of their role hmm. and their work. And, and you, you see it very much acknowledged here and, and elsewhere in the informal way they get paid, like when they do a service at someone and they just say, oh, look, I've got a you know, whatever spare stew or some old clothes lying around and they, you know, they give that to them and the intimacy of their setting in these little 
forgotten corners of the disc like Lankra and like the chalk that like the power players at Ankh-Morpork probably don't think very much about you know like, like it's kind of it becomes a joke in say places like uh, like Raising Steam and like others when these developments are happening in Ankh-Morpork and like Varence from Lankra reaches out and is like the king of Lankra wants a railway there and the real sense is like the people in Ankh-Morpork are like where the fuck is that? <laughs> who's, who's just not asking you know so I, like I, I always like that sort of contrast scene you've got the very literate high politic you know uh, on the cusp of new technologies world of Ankh-Morpork there but beneath the surface uh, for all their importance there's all these other stories going on about in the more kind of oral traditional rural intimate setting uh, that, that the witches occupy and that they may be you know saving lives and saving whole worlds with the likes of veterinary and vimes never really knowing about it you know mm. uh, so it, but it, it felt a little awkward in that regard i mean i didn't really begrudge the idea in general uh, particularly rick Coley, as you said i i, I like because of his relationship with, with granny and i didn't begrudge the idea in general of like this is a farewell to the discworld so we get this quick bit of you know bringing that all together i suppose mm how did you feel about uh jeffrey's inclusion like as a character i I kind of feel like again there's a sort of underwritten element to it you know like a lot of what he's doing feels like it's happening in parallel to the um to the plot rather than you know on its on its own and uh, one one part i did like in that regard is there's a kind of unspoken but clear contrast between the reaction of Nightshade and a reaction of Tiffany when they're both kind of threatened by like an omnicompetent male subordinate you know <laughs> like you you get with, with the queen she's from before the scene where Pease Bossom launches his coup she's kind of noting that like oh, he's been very cocky lately and I've got to watch out for him and she feels continually threatened and Tiffany sort of to herself like is almost irked by how comfortable Jeffrey is with of the witch's world and you mm-hmm. know uh, like almost seems to expect or kind of want them to be a bit more daunted and a bit more unsure of himself but ultimately her reaction to that is like wow this guy really cares about this work and is good at it so i'm gonna help him you know so i like that as a as a parallel uh but overall his kind of story his sort of reverse-esque story feels almost like it could be its own book like it doesn't it, it runs alongside this one rather than intertwining with it you know there's there's more specific elements to that like Mephistopheles his goat I, I felt like we're building towards some revelation about why that goat is so intelligent yeah. and, you know can, can do all this stuff that, that never comes <laughs> I just the reaction in general like I don't want I, I don't know I always feel like a like I'm veering into edgelord territory when you have these scenes where there's a lack of conflict and people are just nice to one another. I'm like, no, they should be fighting, and, you know, <laughs> like there should be more prejudice. But you kind of feel like, like not all of the witches should immediately come around to this idea. You know, even if it's a good one, even if it's a logical one, like, oh, this fellow wants to help out. He's really good at it he should be a witch it's still a huge change to their way of life you know like so you kind of think there should be more of a a push and pull there as to like the likes of you know nanny and so on who are good people and been doing it years but certainly have firm ideas on what witchcraft is you know maybe wrestling with that themselves of like oh it's, it's good but look there's a reason men don't do this and why doesn't he just want to be a wizard and you kind of see it in a nice way with the kelda where the kelda is like, oh yeah, that's a great idea. But then when she looks at her own daughter who wants to be a warrior rather than a Kelda, she's she said, no, no, that's you, you, you're going against years of fecal tradition. 
you're going to be a Kelda. So I like, and it doesn't really get called out either, but it's just there as, and this is just true of life in general, it's much easier for any of us to kind of welcome change and progress and upheaval in spheres and ways of life that we're not all that directly involved in than it is with stuff where you know we're, we're close to whether that's say people reacting in the abstract much more to like you know lgbt issues done like like struggling with, with like a family member coming out as gay or bi or trans or whatever or whether it's this kind of idea of you know looking at say like issues going on in other countries and thinking oh it's just so simple why don't they let you know why don't these two just get along and kind of being ignorant of the struggles you have to resolve these things within your own like i like because that's something is just human you know everyone's guilty of that so i kind of like that happening with the Kelda, but we don't really get it with the witches they're all just with the exception of mrs awad she's kind of set up as you know like a bossy old baggage who like um has a kind of completely misconstrued view of witchcraft i suppose jeffrey feels underwritten in that way that I kind of wish there was more of a struggle to integrate him into the world of witchcraft whereas the only struggle seems to be is in like oh he's really good at it where do we find a role for him as opposed to we have to reevaluate our ideas of what it means to be a witch or who can be a witch or anything like that I don't know if the book would have room for that maybe it should have been its own book or maybe maybe he planned it to be and, and just put this in there because he was conscious of you know that he didn't have much time left but there's a lot I like about it, but at the same time, it does feel kind of awkward. What about you? I think I'll cut him some slack on that one, um, just a little bit, purely because Jeffrey is described as this calm weaver thing. So he seems to have this capacity where there's a little bit of an objection when all the witches gather and they're like, what's Jeffrey doing here? But the witches start to bicker among themselves and everywhere he goes, the the fights die down. So I, I get a little bit of a sense of, oh, this would be a bigger issue if it weren't for the fact that he's able to settle disputes just by being around. Like it's this particular skill that he has, which is never really explained. The Kelda acknowledges that like, oh, he brings peace. No mention of how or what or where that power comes from, or if it is a power or if it's just a personality trait. But because he seems to have this slight magic to him that settles disputes, I'm, I'm kind of okay with the fact that the witches don't argue as much just because he's given this character trait that would settle those arguments pretty quickly. But at the same time, he does feel a little bit underwritten that he should have gotten um, slight, a slightly better origin story or slightly more to do. And then I, I wasn't thrilled about his ending as well. It feels a little bit tacked on that he just goes home and he's got the carriages with the pennants and then his dad feels bad, but his mother is like, oh no, he's great. You shut up. Yeah, that felt... That felt very kind of wish fulfillmently and awkward. And it's like you don't need that, you know, once he's once he's found his way in life and it's like you're gonna take care of Granny Weatherwax's thing and he has esteem within that community. Mm. If you just had him kind of reflecting on like, imagine what my father would think now and like maybe hinting that like, you know, oh Varence has actually invited his dad up for some, you know, state dinner that he's having all the, the locals do, so you know his dad's gonna see him and how's he gonna react. And and we just leave it at that, you know, kind of just like, because we know, we know at that, like by that stage, he's been vindicated, mm-hmm. he's comfortable, you, you don't really need this bit, to, you know, where he stands up to this bullying dad, to, there's nothing it says that hasn't already been said. What about you, Steve? Yeah, I do take it in good faith that it, I, I think I just have to accept that he's a character who is underwritten. And I do think that Terry Pratchett had more plans for developing him as a character. 
like you guys, I do find it quite frustrating that he just doesn't seem to have any faults. That irritated me a lot. Um, the closest thing we see to this is he's one of the few people who seems to succumb to the glamour when the elves are attacking. And I thought it was really interesting that it immediately brings him back to his father again. And I'd love to have seen that explored a little bit more. I do think it's an interesting idea that's being put forward here. And because I'm fairly confident that more was going to be written, I'm also willing to give it a bit of a pass because there's good ideas there. It's they're just not developed enough. Um, although one thing, uh, put, putting him into Granny Weatherwax's cottage at the end, I'm I'm not sure. Part of me thinks that at first it left a slightly unpleasant taste in my mouth. That I'm not sure why. I think I just, <laughs> I think it was just the fact that it was like a male going into Granny Weatherwax and taking taking over her cottage. Like, I can't believe you're a misandrist. <laughs> Man hating feminists. Yeah. <laughs> I, Come on, Rose, stick up for men here against this big. <laughs> yeah, shut up, Steve. <laughs> it's it seemed a little unusual. I mean, it's not it's not the worst thing like that could have possibly happened. It just seemed a bit unusual. It's not what I expected to happen. But like I said, it's not terrible. It's just it was a little unexpected. Um, I do like. One thing that Jeffrey does seem to bring to this, and again, it's a little underdeveloped, but I still think it's a neat idea, is uh, bringing the concept of sheds to uh, the, to Lanker. So there's this notion that men are kind of, their identities are tied very much to their wives in these small communities because uh, a lot of them don't have jobs. They're just these, these old men who don't really do anything. And... Um, you know, they they go to like the taverns and they talk and that's it. But like once they come back from the tavern, they go back to their wives. And so in the tavern, they have an identity that is very much, you know, uh, put forward kind of like, you know, social media, like, you know, oh, this is me. This is like, you know, the person that I am, but it's all like an act. And then when they go back home, their their identity is very much tied to their wife and all the things they do. It isn't 100 percent natural. Um, it's, you know, because it, there's kind of this element and sense that they're a bit put upon by their wives. Like, you know, say, oh, make sure to wash the dishes now and take off your shoes before you come in, you know, that sort of way. So the idea of bringing sheds in, and I know they say sheds first, but in my head, I was just like, oh, man caves. They're introducing man caves into uh, the Discworld. It was a very interesting idea. And... Again, slightly underdeveloped, but I still thought very, very interesting. Um, what did you guys think of that? So this is a specific concept, um, the men's shed. And I only know about it because there's a couple of charities in Ireland that are like the Irish Men's Shed Association. And they're a really great concept that seemed to have sprung up from like the 1980s onwards and then spread around the world. Basically, the concept is that men need a place to go to just... Part of it is community and talk and outreach and part of it is refurbish and part is build and all of that. I feel like Terry Pratchett really, really loves men's sheds. Like <laughs> they're basically magic in this book. And I understand that it must be coming from a really positive place where he just associates like the positive benefits that these can have. But I did feel it was a little bit much to have them build a men's shed for the long man and then have the king of the elves be like, that was a really good shed that I got. What's a shed? Mm. And they explain what a, what a shed is. And, and he says, that's great. So I can enjoy new things. And it's just, it's maybe a little bit too magic. Yeah, that fell a little bit flat for me as well. Like, it, it's again, it's something that I think is a little underwritten. And if more thought had been put into it, that could have gelled quite well. 
um, because the main thing I got from the sheds as a concept was it was men asserting a real identity for themselves that is neither like, you know, put upon, acted or, yeah, put upon or like an act, like their actual identity. And that doesn't seem like something that the King of the Elves really needs, considering as soon as they walk in, he's literally walking around with no trousers on and his lad just like bopping between his knees. I really don't think he's the kind of person who needs like an assertion of his own identity. So, yeah, I agree with you there. That that definitely fell flat for me. Um, but I did think... People with big cocks have problems too. <laughs> you'd, you'd think that, God. You'd think that. <laughs> they really don't. Um, <laughs> so one thing I really enjoyed is the um, the shed that the old man, his name escapes me now, the one who like basically builds the war machine in his uh, shed. As soon as, when that's being introduced in the lead up to like the reveal that there's like a weapon in there, I found myself thinking of the Tom Waits song, What Is He Building In There? The entire way through it. I thought that is, I really wish that there'd been more of a reference to it, but um, yeah, sadly not. <laughs> yeah, I, I would agree with just that the, the kind of scene with the, the King of the Elves being presented with the shed is a bit clumsy, but I like the idea because essentially, like what you have in the shed is, is it's the idea of the, the you know you the, the third space idea right and traditionally it's it's like the, you, the two spaces are home and work and somewhere like the pub or like a, a community building is a, is a third space where you can be kind of like like a mixture of public self and, and private self mm. and th- these men uh, who are like you know I suppose in a very traditional society have had their identity just bound so uh, closely so tightly with the second space with with work the whole time now they're retired they don't have that anymore so they feel like strangers in their own homes without a role or an identity the only place left over is the pub but that's kind of limited in what it can do and you know what it, what it can really do for them in terms of it's you're sitting around drinking and talking about old times and so on whereas the sheds offers them this new space that both allows them to I suppose feel comfortable, but also gives them a sense of purpose. Like they make stuff there, they they do things, you know, they kind of feel um, active again in some way. And given that a lot of what's going on in this book is that the fact that the elves themselves are this relic of a bygone age. Now we're in the age of iron, the age of railways. You know, the the elves, they're like their time in the disc is is gone. So presenting the king of the elves with dementia is sort of like. Hey, you can still find something to do as well. You know, like you're because we we've just had Peas Blossom and the other elves defeated and banished, and the implication is they're never coming back. And he has sort of finished a book. The king has in a, a state of sort of neutrality with, with with the witches. So it's it's like this offering to him of you know you can like uh, you know you, you you can find this space away from the traditional roles of of the elves as well. And I just like that idea in general of of looking at those traditional communities which we tend to call um, and rightfully so patriarchal where you have the men doing all the work and women are kind of limited to the to the domestic sphere but how at a certain stage of life for certain men they then become kind of imprisoned by that because they no longer have access to that sphere of work and they're left sort of bereft of, of their own identities it reminded me of have any have either of you read Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell? No, I've been meaning to. It's it's absolutely superb. I'd, I'd well recommend it. But this is an enormous spoiler because this event that happens quite close to the beginning of the novel. But basically, it begins with it's set in like Regency era Georgian in- England. 
you have this society of theoretical magicians and they all meet up and they're all kind of like sort of middle class to upper middle class lads who are just like shiting on about these old papers on magic without ever doing any magic real magician shows up says I'm the only real magician. If I can show you magic, you guys all have to fuck off and stop calling yourself magicians. <laughs> they agree to it because they're not really, you know, they don't really expect he will uh, come good on his promise. He does. They have to then just disband the society. And it's written that the tone, the, the narrative voice is very much that kind of Jane Austen style. Like the narrator is an unnamed character within the world of the book. Like they, they have a, a voice that's invested in it. And the narrator is kind of commenting on like, the lives of these men after the society has been disbanded and how they're just kind of like sitting home, you know, like drumming their hands on the table, getting it away at their wives and their servants and sort of asking like, Oh, so, um, uh, what, you know, when's lunch? It's like, we've just had breakfast and they have nothing else to fill their day. And it's done quite humorously. And like th- those characters are set up as quite pompous. So, you, you, you know, you get a bit of a chuckle out of seeing them brought low, but there's also a real sadness about it, a real idea of like, like the, even though these lads are of the more comfortable strata of society in that book, like that, this society is the only thing. This magician society is the only thing that gives their lives meaning and gives them identity. And now they don't have that anymore. And we see that with with these these old lads here. You know that like, with the idea of the sheds isn't just to give them a place to be out of the way of nagging women. It's to give them a place where they can feel comfortable and confident and, and feel like they have something to do again. You know. So I really like that idea. Again, I I do think, like you were saying, Steve, there is a, a lack of conflict with how perfect Jeffrey is. Like, he walks into the pub and they're all like, this lad's the best thing in the world. Like, none of them are just like, who's this little posh bollocks? Fuck off, you know, and he has to kind of wind them around, which might have been more interesting to, to see done. But I like, I like some of the ideas presented there. I think it's a really interesting decision to, like, depict those aspects of patriarchal society given how he's depicted the other like you know the side of it the 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 ways in which it affects women and the domestic sphere in great detail in a lot of the other witches books i think it's interesting he looks at this aspect of it here Mm. yeah and you know coming out from the other side uh there's definitely there's definitely room to argue that this is a very feminist uh book of course because every single witch book tends to be quite a feminist text the idea that he's going for here towards the end is an so the fact that all the witches kind of come together they rally behind tiffany to help her take on this force it's the concept is good but personally for me i didn't particularly like the execution it reminded me an awful lot of like a standard Marvel movie in that like, you know, I really like everything it's doing up to the point where it feels it needs to have a big CGI showdown, which is very much what I felt we got towards the end of this. And it, it, it kind of seemed like it was reverting back to the fantasy tropes that these books typically try to subvert towards the end. Like the bit where all the witches are showing off all their powers, like fighting the elves, like, oh, and Agnes is doing this. And look, Miss Owage is doing this over there. Like, wow. And there's a lot of like little tricks that these witches are doing that I feel like they would never, ever do in uh, previous books. Like one thing that really rubbed me up the wrong way was at one point, Nanny Og says, Grebo, go ring the bell in the castle. And I was like, Grebo would never listen to anybody. He would never do that shit in a previous book. He'd look at... I'd listen to his mammy. He'd look at Nanny Og and then he'd go back, dive right back into licking his balls. There's no way he'd run up to like the castle bell doing that. And similarly, almost immediately 
after that, Magrat puts on the armor that she wore in Lords and Ladies, and then she whispers like a spell saying, like, please make your armor lighter, and then suddenly it's lighter. And that I feel like that completely goes against what the witches like have been trying to say this whole time. It's like they don't use like, you know, magic the same way the wizards do and that is wizards magic what she's describing there like previously before this constantly the witches have always been saying it's like headology and like there are other spells in there but there's they're usually justified and this is just well it'll be more convenient if it's light so and it'll sound pretty cool when i say it this way so yeah sorry that was a bit of a tangent there but i i took some issues with the ending of the book as you can probably tell yeah i definitely agree with you with the idea of the they kind of rely on like wizard magic for this grand flashy finish like there's a great part where tiffany comes down well i say a great part it's kind of part that left me conflicted earlier where tiffany comes down to i think it stops some elves robbing a child mm. and i do like that like for all that the elves are being set up here as a sort of relic of this you know they no longer have a place in the world and they're just a kind of chaotic evil force for our heroes to vanquish for the final book I think he does a much better job of that here than he did in, in Rising Steam where the dwarves, the grags were set up similarly black and white, he gives a bit more teeth to the elves like the bit where they like rob a baby does feel legitimately threatening so I like that this would be the point where Tiffany loses it but at the same time I remember feeling like when you get these descriptions of her throwing fire at them it's like can she do this? You know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, is, like if she can, should we have to wrestle more with why she doesn't do that more often? You know, like like as a, as a way of solving problems. I mean, it, there, there are obvious implications here. It's it's kind of like a, uh, you know, I, I don't know, like how like the old superhero quandary of oh why doesn't Batman or Superman like you know why doesn't Superman kill people he, he easily could and it's the idea of of you use these powers too much you'll you'll never stop slippery slopes so so on so I can see the arguments you could have against it but I kind of feel like if you're kind of presenter doing that stuff you need to have them because you're right up until this point largely the thing the stuff we had framed but which magic is like this is a whole philosophy as to why they use this more subtler psychology I suppose human side of magic than the kind of flashy powers from beyond the stars stuff so if you're going to upturn that even in a time of great need you, you kind of need to address it more mm. um, just very quickly what irritated me about like I absolutely agree with you I thought that section was fantastic in the setup because it is a moment where Tiffany has this moral quandary which is really interesting at this point and it also paints a very interesting pictures of the elves because considering she's dealing with Nightshade around the same time but she's also like killing these people in cold blood and there's a very interesting conversation with Naniog which I'm sure we'll get to later the thing that annoyed me particularly about that is that could have been explained in a way like quite easily because she does have this power like that they discussed earlier in this book where she can take pain out of someone and use it on someone else. So that could have been worked in there or similarly in Wintersmith where she can transfer heat and that could have mm-hmm. explained this. But the fact that it's not explained is just frustrating. Rose, your thoughts? <laughs> yes. <laughs> good, 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 good answer, Ross. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> no, essentially, I agree. It was fairly out of the blue to just all of a sudden be able to throw fireballs. Um, it is something that we've never really seen any of them do before, and it's something that probably should have been more of a thing. Like there should have been some explanation of how she, you know, towards the end of the book, she calls the power of the land. Like, oh, mm-hmm. okay, so she called the power of the land, and now she can do that. That's cool because of the 
shepherd's crown. Okay, so now she's she has the ability to do this because she's grown in her powers and da 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 da. She has a tool. There's the methodology, and you get it. Whereas with the fire, now you could say, oh well, it's a pure impulse reaction, like an adrenaline response, like like humans do have in emergencies sometimes. And I guess for a witch, maybe an emergency adrenaline, somebody's about to kill a baby response, could be something completely out of character that you haven't seen before. But it still should have, there should have been some time spent on it. It should have been acknowledged and it should make sense within the realms of the book. It doesn't really gel with the rules of the witch's magic as we've seen them up to now. Yeah, I, I think what hurts it too is because of the underwritten nature of the book, the final battle with the elves doesn't feel quite as grand as it could. Like you might be able to forgive all that if because particularly because it's the final book, if the result of it was this really just cool battle between witches and elves where they're you know throwing all sorts of magic around but what we get is this really oddly paced bit where you have kind of like we get like little snippets showcasing all of the witches abilities like Petulia doing the pig boring to an elf and putting it to sleep and McGrath the armor and all of this stuff and so on and like the feagles and then just like following line is like but they were losing, you know, mm. <laughs> and suddenly, suddenly you're kind of told that you, you've just got like bit after bit of like, oh, here's these cool stuff each of the witches were doing and they, they seem to have the elves on the back foot and then to kind of increase the tension and build towards that bit, which I would agree with you, Rose, does work. It's, it's, I mean, it brings together the way she defeated the Queen of the Elves in, in the We Free Man and a whole relationship between the witch and the witch's land mm. that has been key to all of the witch books and particularly the Tiffany ones. But to set that up, you suddenly have to have them losing the battle, and the way to get them losing, it's just like, it just kind of happens. We're just told, like, in spite of everything you've just read, depicting them winning, take it take it from me, they were actually, you know, in trouble here. Um, so, so the battle isn't just as exhilarating and, you know, grand and that sort of stuff. Like, I mean, this is a very, uh, this world's, I, I suppose, not your average fantasy series, but I think most fantasy readers, you you know, you you have the, those bits. They're a cliche of the genre, but they're they're a cliche for a reason. Or those like you know, big battles, fireballs being thrown around, and spells being cast. That if it's done right, as cliche as it is, you can just be swept up in it and you know, kind of really enjoy it. And uh, unfortunately, that wasn't quite the case with the the battle here. So it makes that pivot from the more subtle form of witch magic to the flashier stuff we see here seem more glaring that it might if we could just I suppose enjoy it too much to notice yeah yeah absolutely um, I do think we should talk about the elves themselves and the way they're represented in this book because I feel like even just as we've been talking I've a little bit been turned around on them because initially I, I wasn't really too pushed on them because I felt like Obviously, in Lords and Ladies, that is a book that we held in very high regard because that's it's just incredible the way that they're pe- depicted in that. In the We Free Men, I even that's very much its own thing, and it felt very separate to Lords and Ladies. If I remember rightly, I wasn't too impressed with the We Free Men. I think t- you were a bit kinder to a column, if I remember right. Yeah, yeah, I, I enjoyed it more. I think actually at the time you didn't connect it to because I remember we had the discussion as to whether the Queen of the Elves in the We Free Men was the same person as the Queen of the Elves in Lords and Ladies. Mm. And I think it is something they mentioned before about there being, like, you know, loads, like, 
because the elves kind of exist in parallel universes, which is something that, or parasite universes, which is something that comes up a lot in Lords and Ladies, that there could potentially be different ones. But I think certainly in this one, it's very clear it's the the same person. Yeah, and initially I I felt very met because I thought, oh my god, we're we're revisiting this foe for the third time now. Like, is this really worth doing again? But in hindsight, because this is something that. Uh, Granny Weatherwax and Nanny Og and so forth they encountered and then Tiffany separately encountered them it would make sense for another encounter because this is kind of unifying kind of like the tradition and the modern like in a whole new direction like because Tiffany kind of represents the modern here because she's taking over the role of Granny Weatherwax but there's a sense that she is taking on like the lessons of like her elders, i.e., Granny Aching, uh, Granny Weatherwax, uh, Nanny Og, and so forth, and like that's building towards like her strength as like the non-leader of the witch witches. So I feel like um, it makes sense to have the elves as a foe there, and I do think it is interesting. I didn't at first, but the fact that they um, tackle it in kind of a similar way that they tackle like the goblins and. It's it's interesting because in Snuff, we looked at goblins, which are traditionally always, you know, a very reviled creature in fantasy literature. And they said, maybe they're not so bad. And looking back in Lords and Ladies, the opposite was true because they're tackling elves, which were, oh, elves are wonderful. Actually, they're not great. But it's interesting in this one, they go back to that again and saying, oh, elves, they're not so great, but maybe they could be. And what I actually like about this in hindsight, I wish it was developed more, but I do think it's interesting that Tiffany tries to get the elves to come around to humanity, and it doesn't necessarily work. Like, it's an attempt, and the attempt is important, not the results. The fact that Tiffany tries really hard to get Nightshade to understand kindness, to understand human nature, and ultimately it's... It's it's it has a it, the result is pivotal but might seem inconsequential because it is Nightshade who stands up to Pease Bottom towards the end, but Pease Bottom ultimately just kills her straight away with no ceremony. But the fact that she does stand up to him is significant, I think, in the like the thinking behind this novel. Yeah, I think because the the elves too. How would you put it? Like you're you're starting he's starting from a different. Like, like I, I compared them to the Grags in um, Raising Steam, but because the elves are depicted as these, like, almost inherently malicious, fantastic creatures, as opposed to the Grags that, obviously, while well, they're dwarves, they're a fantasy race, but within the disc, they're, like, people, so we kind of expect them to have more complex motivations. There's a lot more leeway, certainly when I was reading this, for just, like, oh, yeah, the elves are just an enemy, and they just represent this last gasp of the old world to try and pull back the disc from tradition and progress into you know savagery and kind of just like hedon- hedonistic individual sadism so I, I like it's, they're just a, a better fit for that kind of story you know when you just want to present modernity and legacy and moving ahead as just largely a good and inevitable thing when when the force you have against that is a vivid but like ultimately inherently kind of two-dimensional thing rather than a an attempt at doing something more complex it it, it just i know it works better Mm. on that on that note of of modernity one thing i really liked here it's just a small scene but it's the kind of thing i was crying out for in 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 raising steam that we we didn't get and i just think something that brings such pathos is the bit when um tiffany's dad is in the pub 
and he's overhearing some of his mates talking and they're calling like the Fox Renard or something and he, and he says I wonder if we'll be the last generation to like know these terms and he like they obviously him he's a farmer and his mate uh, uh, his mates are farmers and they have this very close relationship to the land and that's kind of being unmoored by the railway which is both bringing industrialization but also bringing I suppose like making people more dispersed you know you have the uh, the fella I, I think he gets into an argument with his son where his one of his son's mates has become a railway engineer and the son sees this as a better job than being a farmer and Tiffany's dad kind of sees it as like, oh, no, nah, he'll, he'll come around to it eventually. But you kind of get the feeling in, in that scene in the pub that he is a little threatened by this idea of like, well, the world is changing hugely and we're never going to be quite as attached to our small little corner of it as we were again because we have access to the rest of it and it's sort of a good thing because it means more freedom but more freedom you know inevitably spreads you a bit thinner and there's something lost in that tradition and i just think that's small and subtle and beautiful and i i, I just love the way he doesn't try to come down on either side of it you mm. know what i mean he doesn't present like tiffany's dad as this old stick in the mud who can't wake up to modernity nor does he present like the idea of his son wanting to be a railway engineer some kind of horrific break from tradition and from you know things as they should be it's just it's just there presented to us in its complexity and yeah it's it's, it's only a little bit but i really really like that mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I do think you're right. And I think that point is emphasized a little bit by the fact that Tiffany is constantly going between the chalk and uh, Lonker. And it's mm-hmm. interesting in that Tiffany is someone who is very much driven by her work, that despite all the problems it causes her, she she's really, uh, she, she throws herself into it. Like she loves her work. It, it doesn't necessarily define her I think, I think the previous book kind of went to great pains to say that her entire identity isn't necessarily which there are other like aspects to her character but it is a big part of her and I think it's interesting that problems are drawn from this but she doesn't shy away from the prospect of taking on two steadings you know and similarly we also see the fact that uh, she goes to Ankh-Morpork at one point during this book as well which I don't think we mentioned in the summary and she visits um, her her beau whose name I've completely forgotten Preston Preston thank you again this is an interesting thing in that they are also like almost on opposite side of the discs but they have a semi-healthy relationship going and you know again they, they they're kind of just come to terms with that they know it's difficult like they're fully aware of that but there's no sense of well we should just give up on it then you know it you do get the sense that it is going to continue and like yes there are problems there but you know they can work through it and aside on being like an interesting take on you know the modern world it's also an interesting take on relationships i would say uh actually they they have i think one of the healthiest relationships in the entire discworld series i i think um Defi- it's like me and you with this podcast. Yeah, defined purely on the fact we don't see each other very often. It's what makes us happy. <laughs> yeah, we're like Mr. and Mrs. Colin and that one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I wanted to say, what did you think of the, the previous love interest, who, uh, whose name I've also forgotten, the Baron? Roland. Roland. He shows up briefly in this again. And I think it's a wonderful piece of misdirection over the course of five books in that you do sort... I remember at the time thinking, like, I can't see these two getting together. And that feeling kind of pervaded but it was where i thought it was going in during the second and third book and it's so satisfying that it didn't go there 
Yeah, I agree. They definitely weren't suited to each other. But I'm a little bit unhappy with the way they've done Roland in the last book or two, where he's just so useless now. And he just <laughs> He's in one scene in this book and he just shows up and tells Tiffany that people aren't happy with her and asks her to kind of step up a bit and then goes away feeling like he's kind of made a, made a mistake here. And that's his whole function. He used to be a main character. Yeah, yet there's certainly a sense in like I shall wear midnight when he's, you know, that he's really struggling to cope, having been thrust into this role with the death of his dad. So you, you like his lack of competence in it there and his unhelpfulness to Tiffany is sort of a plot point that you associate with the events of that book. Yes. Whereas I hadn't really thought of it, but you would kind of expect in this book that, like, oh, he's he's been the Baron for, like, a little while now, so he presumably must, you know, have gotten good at it, or at least found a better, to use a very modern term, a better work-life balance. <laughs> <laughs> like, than what we see here. I looked at it in a very optimistic way, because I thought the Baron, he kind of came off to me as a sort of proto verence in a way, because you know he and um his his wife the 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 doctor Letitia. Letitia thank you she, Letitia to a certain extent sort of reminded me of the er, Magrat in the earlier books in that I think when she's described in the previous book she's constantly sobbing and like crying but like she's actually like quite competent in certain ways mm-hmm. and there's certain parallels there between Magrat. I think it might just be because I think one of the earliest descriptions of Magrat is she was described as a bit of a wet hen, which I think kind of uh, uh, syncs up with Letitia. And I like that Magrat and Verence have a very just like efficient relationship towards the end. Like they just know how to talk to each other and treat each other. And I feel like what's being said here, maybe not intentionally, but it's how it was portrayed to me, is this is what is likely to happen with the Baron. I think he's just going to grow into this role and become accustomed to, you know, the kind of person he needs to be. But um, that's just my opinion on it. I do like in general that, like, not only do we get the, the misdirect of him being set up as a as a love interest and they don't go down that, that road in a way that rings true to, you know, like, Tiffany's, what, like, like 11 at the start of the books, younger, you know, mm. and, and she, she then we, we get her meeting role in their mid-teens, like, you know, how many people do you know that, like, met the, the love of their life in, <laughs> in their, their early teens, you know, very few, so it, it, it rings true and speaks to the complexity of, of, of the books and, and her journey as a character that she isn't just paired with the first and only eligible man she meets, but I also like that he's still around, you know, mm. it, like, like, he isn't just this role in her journey of, like, the first-time boyfriend or the ex or whatever who, like, you know, they try and make it work. It doesn't work. He vanishes. A new man comes in. You know, he's still around and she still has to deal with the kind of leftover feelings they both have over the fact that, you know, it is kind of awkward. Like, and I'm I'm sure like a lot of people have that in their life where, you know, the, the people you're romantically involved with don't just disappear to, to another land and let you continue your story on its own terms. You know, you often have to just deal with them in general, whether that's in a, like whether you become friends with them or whatever, or have to work with them or, you know, friends of friends and you see them more often. I, I just, I, I like that, that bit of awkwardness and complexity and how they both deal with one another never quite goes away. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And the Tiffany Preston stuff is really interesting. I mean, essentially they're both very much passionate about their jobs and they're trying to make the the relationship work in spite of that. But it's clear that, like, 
neither of them is going to ask the other one to give up their job for it, you know? Like, they both respect each other too much to be like, oh, well, I really want to be a doctor, or I'm a really important witch, so <laughs> if you could just give up that hobby you're doing and we could be happier. They both respect one another too much to to ask that. And and in the end, it's kind of ambiguous by the end as to whether or not like they will you know, continue to go out one another or, or whether they're essentially married to their jobs. I mean, I do think the scene when they meet one another in Ankh-Mor Park, the writing is a bit on the nose. Again, back to that first draft type feeling of like, they're both just saying what they're feeling directly, mm. which is so rarely the case in, in real life. You know, often you're, you're saying one thing and meeting another or letting your feelings kind of show in the periphery of what you're saying. And I can imagine a, you know, redrafted, better written version of that scene where you're having them talk about something, but they're, you know, the meaning is becoming clear rather than them just telling each other, these are my feelings now. But I still love the essence of what's going on there. Mm. I still think it's it's really nice. Well, what did you think of their relationship, Rose? Yeah, I think it's very, very, very well done. And I can't remember whether it's Wintersmith or A Half Full of Sky. They meet in Wintersmith, don't they? I think it's um, I Shall Wear Midnight. Yeah, they, I'm sorry, yeah, I'm mixing up the order. Um, but the one in which Tiffany meets her future self and then she finds out about the horse and then Preston gives her the horse, the necklace mm-hmm. horse. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's it's very nice to have that flash forward to know that whether or not they stay together or not, he's always going to be important to her because she still has that necklace in the future and it's it's always going to be important to her. So hopefully they stay together and that's what that means but at the very at the very least if they don't stay together it's at least important and i don't think it's going to end badly because if something ends badly then you throw the necklace in the river it's true (laughs) which is exactly what she did with the horse or not with the horse with the um uh what what was the other one the one the one that uh roland gave her oh and then the wintersmith like thinks it yeah and she has to throw it away I forget what it was. I it wasn't, yeah, the, no, I might the, be mixing up two things here. But um, the ho- the horse was the one uh, that Roland gave her, and it's the rabbit that uh, Preston gives her. Thank oh, you, yes, yeah. thank you. Yeah. Okay, sorry, it's been a little while since I read them. Yeah, but um, yeah, no, I do. I I particularly like that as a relationship because it's something that I think we commented on early on that uh, Terry Pratchett had a bit of trouble writing. Well, it was mo- mostly just um, um, believable women, really, but he's really come a long way like how he portrays relationships and uh, this one i just i really really like the fact that neither person is defined by the relationship like it's it's a functioning relationship with its problems but it's just not the most important thing in either of their lives or, or it might be but it doesn't define them so oh, it's, it's wonderfully written i mean obviously like you said uh colin there are like some very on the nose bits but the concept behind it is very well done mm-hmm yeah, absolutely. What what did you think of Mrs. Earwig Awaj in in this book? Underdeveloped. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a recurring theme, but I mean, I think there are interesting bits there that sadly we don't get to see. Like, mm. I, I sort of felt like she's either interesting or inconsistent, and I, I can't decide which. Like previously, she sort of depicted as a ridiculous figure. Like you know, in the, in the previous books, like that, her idea of witchcraft is so misconceived that you know even though she's sort of a formidable personality all of the rest of the witches kind of like just like laugh at her behind behind her back you know 
and she's only really a threat because Tiffany's young and like not far on in the craft, so she's theoretically an authority figure, whereas that isn't the case here. And I couldn't decide whether the fact that she's suddenly seen a more formidable, a more genuine threat to Tiffany here is like a way of showing, oh, with Granny Weatherwax gone, there's this power vacuum. So this figure that was previously sort of with this misconstrued idea of witchcraft that was previously kind of managed to just shunt it off into her own little corner by the, the you know, powerful organizing personality of Granny Weatherwax now is like there's a threat that her ideas actually could take hold and make the whole thing more shallow and more based in runes and magic with a K and you know all that bollocks instead of like stuff that actually helps people or whether it felt inconsistent that she suddenly you know like someone we should take seriously I, I don't know certainly the bit where like she has the resistance to the elven glamour is like something that must have had some idea behind it that we never get to see like where Nightshade puts on her glamour and she doesn't react at all and Nightshade's like are, are you an elf like what's, what's going on here and we never really see what you know what what the idea behind that is but just the general transition of her from kind of ridiculous to formidable I couldn't decide whether that was another underwritten bit or whether it was just a a case of like Granny Weatherwax is gone and all the old certainties have been turned upside down. Yeah, I I would certainly lean towards underwritten more so than um, the idea of it, like her all the old uncertainties being turned on its head, mostly because of her resistance to the glamour. I could 100% see if this was a completed book, there would be some probably very, very humorous explanation as to why the glamour didn't work on her. I can't see it simply being, oh yeah, and she's just actually really good at this. Like, I just can't really see that happening. Um, sorry, I, I had a bit of a revolution moment. I just, I remembered Anagramma was the name of the girl. Ah. That's, it, it just popped into my head. We got there <laughs> an hour and a half later. <laughs> the, the cogs in her head start turning correctly. And uh, does she show up at the end? I'm trying to remember if she does, and it's just... I think she is, yeah. she She's in the, the kind of battle with the, the rest of them. Mm, yeah, but um, overall, I'd have to say, I just think it's an underwritten part, and it's unfortunate, because I would have liked to see what ideas are being like teased out there, and I just don't think we're going to get it. But um, what do you think, Rose? Do you have a different opinion? For me, I I don't want to guess at Terry Pratchett's intentions here, but for me, this book felt like it was trying to make almost everything better. Like you've got the elves who were this traditional, very, very well-known villain, and he brings in this concept of an elf learning to be human and developing. And oh, it just feels like it's trying to wrap everything up and make everything a little bit better by the end of the book and this felt like just an extension of that whereby he doesn't want to have this witch being just a complete nightmare and still training younger witches up in these wrong ways so he sort of salvages her character in an interesting way here but that's why you know obviously I'm just guessing here it just feels like that's what he was going for it feels like that's the theme of the book is trying to get trying to end it in a better place than it starts really but I did really want to know why she was immune to the glamour. And it's, it's very frustrating not to know. Mm. It could just be that she has sheer stubbornness in human form and something like that can't get past her. But you would wonder, then surely Nanny Og would have been immune as well. Others would have been immune yeah. if it was just stubbornness. 
I would love it if the reason she was immune to the glamour would actually be because of Mephistopheles, the goat, was like had some sort of hand in it. And that would also explain like why he was a mystical figure like that was tied in together somehow, because they're the two things that frustrate me the most about the book, not knowing why she was <laughs> resistant to the glamour and what exactly the deal with Mephistopheles was, because we, we don't we, we never get an explanation on that, do we? Because... Well, I mean, for one thing, we never really see any magical powers per se. Like, you could sort of write Mephistopheles off as an exceptionally well-trained goat, and that's it. And everyone else just has a weird feeling about it. You could theoretically write it off as that, couldn't you? Yeah, but it it kind of feels inconsistent with, like, the fact that, say, if you look at the other creatures in the disc world that had some kind of sentience you either have Grebo who say has been turned into a human <laughs> and, and it's it's clearly we're told that sort of you know has lingered in him or you have someone like Gaspode who has or, or Morris who like their the fact that their power to speak is actually a, a part of the book like you don't really get this halfway anthropomorphized animals where they're kind of you know cutesy and can interact with humans but you know aren't fully magical uh, like certainly the, the stuff with Mrs. Awaj, I mean, we, we've had something like this before with uh, Agnes being able to resist the vampire stuff because she's always in two minds, <laughs> you know? So there could be some kind of psychological there, thing there with Mrs. Awaj, but unfortunately we don't see it. I suppose this is what fanfic is for. <laughs> That's what I think. I think it's down to per psychology. I'm just not sure exactly how. <laughs> I mean, I, I do think it's interesting that, like, obviously Granny Weatherax is a character we all like, and, like, most of the, the fandom does, but she's often depicted as disliked within her own, within the sphere of the witches, albeit sort of feared and respected. So there could potentially be something that when she dies and you have this power vacuum, like Mrs. Alwatch's way of doing things that's previously been depicted as ridiculous, there's a sort of case made in the book for it where Tiffany is kind of given a room to doubt of, like, uh, maybe, you know, should I just be blindly following, like, Granny Weatherwax's way of doing witchcraft? Like, now we're at a crossroads, she's died, I've been left in charge, should I listen to Mrs. Howage and integrate some of that stuff? I mean, I don't think, based on any of the stuff we've seen with it, she should, but I think it would be interesting if, like, that was a kind of conflict in this book of, like, all these old certainties being overturned, but yeah, unfortunately, I mean, overall with the book, its, it's reach exceeds its grasp, really, because of the, the conditions he, uh, he was in. I have a point I want to make about Mephistopheles anyway. Fire away. All right. Just one thing on Mephistopheles the goat, and I just think that this is potentially another thing where if Jeffrey had been developed a little bit more, because there is something about Jeffrey, like I said, this Cam Weaver thing, it doesn't seem to just be a personality trait, it feels slightly magical. And you get this backstory mm-hmm. of Mephistopheles where um, he stayed up all night with the goat and he fed it milk from its from his fingers and everything like that, milked the goat, then fed it from its finger and stayed up all night trying to save this goat's life. And it just feels like very much like um, the way animals imprint on the first thing they see as their mother and then they take on some of their traits. I, I think that Jeffrey must have been going to be something just a bit more magical. There was going to be some explanation for why he can just magically calm any situation and I think the goat imprinting on him and picking up some of his intelligence might have been part of that in the grand design of things yeah yeah I I think quite possibly I think one of the reasons why Jeffrey's calm waving stuff is sort of uh, frustratingly underwritten part is that like a lot of the other I suppose like powers we see in the disc world are tied to a deeper idea or 
clear kind of reference tradition in fantasy he's in dialogue with. So, I mean, you see that very much, obviously, with the witch and the, the difference in witch magic and wizard magic that we've spoken about. But say someone like Carrot, who's supernaturally charismatic and everyone loves him, is kind of, like that doesn't really have a you know an explanation but because he's so clearly a conversation with this archetype of like the lost king raised in humble circumstances who's going to come back and save everything the you know the aragorn quintessential fancy uh, protagonist figure it, it it doesn't like his his kind of quote-unquote powers don't feel like frustrating or underwritten or we don't look for a source to them because it's like the source is clearly this metatextual conversation Pratchett is having with the genre whereas like it's possible that there was something there that he wanted to do with Jeffrey maybe something to do with like like men and stuff to stuff we value in men because he ends up making these men sheds because his, his uh, kind of conflict is with his father who expects him to be more bloodthirsty and rootless and traditionally masculine and so on maybe it's something about like men in in caring roles like say nurses or carers and so on or, or even like uh, teachers at younger ages tend to be still i think predominantly women and there's still a kind of um struggle to, about like you know of people uh, accepting or, or thinking of those as viable career paths for men so like maybe there's something there he wanted to kind of converse with i i don't know but i think that that's what I, I struggle with, with, with in, in that not so much that we don't get an explicit like explanation of here's where his like he gains these powers as in like what is this supposed to be what's mm -hmm. this why does he have powers not from from an oratorial point of view like not like what what source has given him powers in this world why has Terry Pratchett given him powers mm. uh, it's funny because like a lot of a lot of what we said so far has come around to this point of the book feeling kind of underwritten and like an early draft which it, it you know more or less admits to being in that afterward mm. and there are certainly there are other like bits there i could cite like i think the the part where uh tiffany goes back for like a kind of final sleep essentially final rest in her old bedroom before the battle with the elves has some really clumsy writing in it that again just feels like first draft like like she's so we're told within the space of a few paragra paragraphs that the shepherd's crown is on the shelf above her bed and that she's holding it in her hand like like it's you know it kind of sets the scene of it being up there with other things and then it's it's in her hand later we're also told about like how she always slept with the window open unless it was a gale or a blizzard but the scene ends with like rob anybody tapping on the window mm. like like it's closed I and mean, this isn't you know whatever like oh, this world's ruined forever <laughs> but i suppose it's kind of you know endemic of that like feeling of it being a first draft not only in these bigger concepts and ideas the book is dealing with being unresolved but also just in these little mistakes that you would iron out if you're mm. going back over that scene there's also a weird bit at the end when um the elves are defeated in Lankra. nanny starts talking about how maybe they need the elves to like because the owl lad mr sideways has this sort of catapulting for firing swarf and he he talks about like oh we can just we can put like Swarf around the, the dancers so they can't ever escape and she kind of ruminates on you know maybe witches need the elves and these things will keep us like sharp and we need a foe to fight and no one disagrees with this but then by by the end of it they are putting Swarf around and when Tiffany defeats them there's very much a sense of like you're gone forever we're not ever going to deal with you again 
which isn't a bad thing in itself, because again, it's an out of finality for the final book, but it just feels weird when we just had the possibility mooted of like, you know, oh, maybe we should leave this door open and we, we need these things to, to fight. But in any case, all of that is to say, we've been kind of going back and forth on this thing of like, these underwritten aspects of the book, and yet, I still feel quite positive towards this book at, at the end of all of that. I don't know about either of you, and like like what what is that uh, like if you feel similarly can you can you kind of parse that like as as to why this book leaves a good taste in the mouth despite being by its own admission like you know underwritten and unfinished or if you feel it leaves a bad taste in the mouth why so i think it's because we can quite clearly pinpoint the points that we the, the moments that we think are underwritten and we can see the potential there like there's some very good ideas being mined here and I think whereas in other books we where there have been cert, there have been certain other books where there was good ideas behind it but the execution execution wasn't great, you know that's something that was eventually just kind of finished. Said okay, well I'm done with this now and I'm moving on to the next one. So we're like that's a finished project, so we can give marks for ideas and execution. Whereas in this one, because to a certain extent we can't really give marks for execution because it feels. There, there, there's an obvious handicap there but like the ideas behind I think some of the ideas are very strong and because it is sort of a first draft it has us thinking about it a lot more <laughs> it, it, it's definitely more of a thinker because like the concepts behind it are so up in the air because there's bits here that you know you can only you, you know, you, you've no idea what exactly it is that Terry Pratchett was trying to say for a lot of it, so you can only ruminate on it. But I also think that while some of the mistakes are very, um, like some of the writing, like just it, it's a bit clumsy, it's kind of easy to forgive because, like, it's just easy to forgive because of the entire circumstances around the book, really. You know, um, like like you said, uh, Claude, there's there's a one line that stood out to me for being just like, as you said, it's very rough, very first draft. It's near the end where she's after uh, raising thunder and lightning to like, you know, fight off Peasbottom. And she says, what was it? The shepherd's crown glowed golden on her breast at the heart of it all, the soul and center of her being. This next part is the part I have a problem with. Oh, wait. Sorry, I'm reading the wrong bit. <laughs> Excuse me. Where is it? Oh, here it is. Yeah, sorry. I was wondering. I was thinking, wow, that sounds really no, good. No, no, no. Sorry. <laughs> it's, um, who is that? Do, 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 do. Yeah, here he goes. Uh, she stood tall, frosty furious. You called me a country girl, she said, and I will see to it that the country will see you dead. It's just the repetition of the use of will. That sentence just sounded really bad when I was reading it. Um, it's it's just a little thing, but like you know, little bits like that he can just kind of write off because clearly that wasn't finished. I don't know if I I don't think I answered your question at all, but I know what you mean. Like I do feel like kindly toward this novel, even though there are very obvious flaws to it. Like it just it feels unfinished, but it's a really good unfinished book. For me, it's something a little bit different. For me, um, I I do really really like this book. And it obviously does have its flaws. And I do have that really positive association with it, um, which is exactly what we're talking about. For me, I think it's because it's the final. And so because it's the final Discworld novel, you want a few things from it. You want to know where everybody winds up. You want everybody to get their right send off. You want questions answered and you want things to wind up in a neat package. So for me, it doesn't matter that some things are dropped or that I don't really know exactly how Jeffrey is magic or why the goat can count and use a toilet because I want to know, okay, Granny Weatherwax passed away. That's tragic. 
death has taken her. She's been given the right amount of respect. She has been buried in the wicker basket that she made herself. Okay, perfect. The animals have come to say goodbye. Perfect. Okay, I'm happy with that. Tiffany finds her own identity and she builds her own shepherd's hut and that's where she winds up and now she's in her right place. She's looking after the people that are important to her. She's looking after her own steading. Jeffrey gets Granny Weatherwax's place and now that place is occupied and it's being looked after. You know, you've got the witches kind of Magrat coming out of retirement and that's good. You want to know where she is. You want to know that she's happy and her marriage is still good. You wanted to know that the Baroness has come into her powers a little bit. So everything that I wanted to know is answered and I'm happy enough with where Granny Weatherwax's ending wound up and I'm happy enough with where Tiffany wound up. And I think that's that's it for me is just I wanted to know everybody was going to be okay. And I'm happy with that. God, that's very succinct. Yeah. Because you should really should have been on this podcast for the last couple of novels, Rose. That's much more, <laughs> more succinct than anything I said anyway. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think you're, you're, you've, you've hit the nail on the head, all right? There is a kind of comfort in the very marked sense of finality about this, you mm. know, um, that it's a kind of miracle we got it in any form at all, really. So... Yeah, it's, it's something to be to be grateful for, and his his kind of consciousness of obviously his own the the little time he had left. Obviously, you know he he had plans for some other books after it, but he's definitely writing this like it could be the last one. Particularly that last chapter with Tiffany when she set up her house and she's looking out on the sunset, and there's that great line about like the little you know the everyday magic that was no less magic because it was you know because it happened every day it's just really uh, 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 I'll find it here somewhere uh, and cut this page twirling <laughs> we're leaving it this could be like ASMR or something there is a great line that Granny Weatherwax has just to fill the silence here but um, it's uh, when Granny Weatherwax is being taken away by death and I feel like it kind of complements the line you're going to say uh, Colin as well but uh, she says, in my part of the world, I could make little miracles for ordinary people. And that, that was one of the really beautiful lines, I thought, when, uh, when he was depicting Granny Weatherwax's death. That, I think, for me, that was the highlight of this book more than anything else. Um, be- because, as you said, Rose, that was the, I think that was the key thing we all wanted from this book more than anything else, is like how, how are things going to end for Granny Weatherwax? And I, I can't think of a better way that it could have worked out, like... The line I was looking for was from the bed she could see out of a small window, see clear across the downs right to the horizon and she could see the sun rise and set and the moon dance through its guises the magic of every day that was no less magic for that and part of what's always made this growth great is this ability to make the fantastic feel mundane and the mundane feel fantastic you know whether it's taking things like cinema and shopping centers and you know like uh things like that and kind of spinning like fantasy implications out of them or taking things like a seven foot skeleton who's as old as all life in the universe and making him seem like your kind of awkward granddad you know great uncle figure that weird balance and dance has been something he's done so well and that that line sums it up beautifully so i think in those like final scenes with tiffany yeah there is this perfect encapsulation of the the finality of it and the the comfort you get in seeing these characters giving appropriate send-off if not as quite well realized as you might like but like it's it's going in the right direction even if it's kind of a a bumpy road to to get there Mm. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think you're right as well that we weren't sure that we were going to get this book. And so the fact that we could have ended on Raising Steam and instead we get the Shepherd's Crown, it just makes you really appreciate it more. Absolutely. So, I mean, I think I'm, I'm true. Most of the, the notes I wanted to cover, this is going to be a strange one to rank, but look, we've committed to this silly endeavor the whole time. Uh, unless either of you have anything else you, you'd like to fit in before that? Yeah, I have one more. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a quote that I really liked, and I made a note of it here, and there's a reason I like it. It's a quote about Tiffany, and it goes, Like any sensible witch, she wore strong boots that could march through anything. Good, sensible boots. But that did not stop her feeling her land, feeling what it told her. That's Vimes in Ankhmore Pork. Yeah, yeah, what is the shoes that you can feel the pavement through. Yeah, yeah. for me I love that because <laughs> Vimes is exactly who you want to leave Ankhmore Pork in the hands of. And now Tiffany is exactly who you want to leave the chalk in the hands of. You've got this authority that can feel where she is through her feet. And that's Vimes all over, that's Tiffany all over. And I was, I just, I read that and then I reread it. that's really nice yeah yeah completely there's kind of a a, like an esteem for this sort of solid practicality in it that you know again you don't often like fantasy is about the fantastic so you don't always get that you know you get kind of the little village farm boy wanting to leave his town he's bored with to you know fight dragons and go up to big castles and so on and you have in those two characters people who like just really find the the value in the love and passion they have for the, you know, kind of like grimy town and boring rural place they, they respectively that they were brought up in. I think it's it's really, yeah, it's really lovely the more I think about it. Hmm. Uh, one more thing I'd like to bring up, um, and I, I don't think we're going to talk about this for very long. Just we didn't really talk much about the Nack McFeagle in this book. And I feel like originally when uh, the Tiffany Aching series started because it was originally called the We Free Men and they had a presence throughout all five of the books I think that was going to be the key the backbone of like her entire saga like the the uh, Nack McFeagal and like how they influence her life that became less and less so the further we got on to the point that in this book I feel like they didn't really need to be there at all but just wanted to get your opinions on it like i mean i'm not it's unlike um i'm not saying that like i i wish they weren't in there because obviously they're very entertaining to read about but i felt like they were a lot more superfluous in this book than any of the other tiffany aching books so i don't think it would have suffered well they were good for comedy value but i don't think they had a huge role in the narrative no i think they were there just because you can't really have a tiffany aching book without the nap mcfeagal without a good explanation for why you wouldn't have the Nack McFeagal. Because they're too integral to all of the other books now. Hmm. They, they could just as easily have not been in it, I think, and not influenced the plot in any real significant way. But Terry Pratchett would have had to come up with a very good reason for why they recused themselves from the situation of this book. Hmm. Yeah, fair. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it does show, I suppose, the shift in tone of the Tiffany books as she's gotten older and they've... Well, they, they've never shied away from heavy territory. I mean, the first one features her little brother being uh, stolen away, and she kind of has to confront her own, I suppose, like selfishness and her, and her feelings for for him in, in a way that I think's really well dealt with, where neither kind of you know harangues her about it nor um, you know holds her up as, as as a paragon. But yeah, they they still, despite 
while those books have always dealt in heavy enough themes, as, as we get closer to the end and this sort of air of finality that hangs over this book, I mean, it's it's kind of interesting that you, you have the elves. They're, 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 what they're railing against is the idea that the disc is modernizing and it's moving away from them. It's, you know, it should be sort of true of the Fiegel as well because they, they can never really fit into... Uh, any sort of organized society. I mean, we sort of addressed that at the end of I Shall Wear Midnight, where she has the arrangement with Roland, where he essentially like legally sets aside the land around their mound as theirs. But it is sort of curious when these last few books have kind of seen every corner of the Discworld integrated into modern civilization, most notably with the goblins who kind of move from this like pariah status to being these useful, you know railway engineers and clax engineers and so on and even in the brief scene with the gnomes in raising steam where they you know they, they meet them and they, they say hey you know you essentially like you want, you'll get re- remunerated for this and there's a sense of the gnomes are being brought into this world as well and the, the two who aren't are the elves who can't really be because they're just too selfishly destructive and the fegal are <laughs> kind of like humorously destructive but they, but it isn't really addressed with the fegal and I don't know. It's, it's it jumps out to me now. I, I think it would be. I'm not sure whether it would whether it would work with a kind of people that are largely there for comic relief to have to deal with them in this really serious way, you know. <laughs> and whether it would seem kind of like disappointing and dull, it's like like a rock star finally settling down if the you know if the Fiegel integrate themselves into society and get jobs or something like that wouldn't seem like a very happy ending, really. Yeah. No, I absolutely agree with you, but I think they kind of leave it like I think I was fairly satisfied with the ending of I Shall Wear Midnight in that they are sort of acknowledged and respected, but not integrated. And I think that's the best you're ever going to hope for with the Nack McFeagal, honestly. So uh, shall we move on to the ranking? Uh, we shall, but first, one thing we do have to take care of is the tie we had between A Hatful of Sky and A Shower Mid oh. that I think we were supposed to resolve on the last episode, but we forgot because <laughs> we were complaining too much about Rose. No, I think we were we were going to wait until Rose came on because we want, we want Rose, we want you to sort this out because I can't even remember. I think I was pushing for A Hatful of Sky and you were pushing for I Shall Wear Midnight. Isn't that right? It's been so long ago, I can't even remember. Yeah. I think so, yeah. But basically, Rose, we need you to be the tiebreaker because we just could not settle on which should be higher above. So, But I, I'm happy with whatever you say if you have a favour between those two. Okay. This is going to be tricky because I've read I Shall Wear Midnight much more recently than A Hatful of Sky. Mm-hmm. So I admit to some bias here. But I would put I Shall Wear Midnight higher than A Hatful of Sky because I Shall Wear Midnight has this villain that creeped the hell out of me. I got so mad about him, the cunning man. I hated him. I was so unsettled by him, just this idea of this toxicity that just follows the witches around. And it's so visceral and real and exactly what would happen. And it's just, I felt like he was a really good villain because he's a villain that gets into the heads of people and turns people against other people. And that's a terrible, horrible superpower to have. Cool. Well, Rose, thanks very much for, for resolving that one for us. I don't know why we we're so set against the ideas of, of, of having a tie that we need to resolve it, but I suppose it does kind of feel like if you're going to do the ranking in the first place, you know, you may as well follow it through to its, its logical end and, and slot them all in somewhere. So, finding a place for this one's going to be tricky. I mean, I suppose the natural comparison places are those other 
Tiffany book. So just to to uh, say so we got Winter Smith at twelve. I shall wear Midnight now at at, at sixteen with a hatful of sky at seventeen, and We Free Men at twenty six. Like where where which one is this one closer to here? Where where should we kind of begin the argument? For me, so I, I want to say after the discussion we had, I think I would have been a bit feel about, felt a bit strange about this before. But because I've got such admiration for the ideas that were put into this and a surprise, surprise at myself here, how willing I am to excuse a lot of the flaws in the book. I think I'm just going to rank this as I would any of the other books. Now, having said that, I think the most likely comparison would be with the We Free Men. Because although I really, I'm really intrigued by the ideas that are in this, there's some very frustrating flaws in this, which not really the fault of Terry Pratchett here, but going by my own criteria, I'm going to rank this in the same way. So that would be my starting place against the We Free Men. I would sort of agree, because I think looking at the list now, We Free Men is just below teeth of time right and just above that is amazing morris i'm wearily awaiting into this argument because i know rose you're a huge fan of teeth of time mm-hmm. i mean steve weren't all that mad about it when we when we uh, done it for the podcast so look you know we're, we're, we're like your your power extends only to ranking the tiffany ones i here. understand reevaluate this. but if we ever start a patreon that's 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 the kind of patreon goal extra episode is rose just haranguing us both for <laughs> For not appreciating Teeth of Time, <laughs> but but I I would think of Teeth of Time and all the ones below it. So it would kind of like I suppose like Morris there as the sort of um, barrier is like all of the ones below that. Like so you got Teeth of Time, We Free Men, Jingo, Interesting Times, Toad, Life Fantastic, but all of those are the ones where kind of main flaw in them is this like I suppose. I think of all, all of those, with the exception of some of the, the early ones that are down there, like Life Fantastic, that's just there for, like, it's not as ambitious as, as the others or whatever. I think of all the other ones as being the ones where it's like, oh, you can see a lot of great ideas, but there's key flaws in how they're being realized. Like, so something like Making Money, that like, I really like some of the stuff going on in that, but it's kind of a mess, like, plot-wise and, you know, structure-wise. There's some unrealized ideas. Likewise, Toad, which sort of feels like, like like a retread of some of the others that that needs kind of needs something new, but there are also great stuff in the atmosphere of the you know down dark mine atmosphere with the dwarves. Something like Last Continent, which is like just full of great imagery and ideas of evolution and forming a nation and and the, the like the depictions of this kind of fantasy outback, but is also really meandering plot wise because Rincewind just walks around. So it's like. From We Free Men downwards, all of those ones are the ones where it's like their position, their place, largely speaking, lower on the list is down to great ideas, but like flawed in a key way by the execution. And that, owing to, you know, reasons relating to his health, is, I'd say, certainly the case with Shepherd's Crown from what we've been saying. So with all that said, then, uh, does it go above or below We Free Men? Hmm... <laughs> This is going to be so difficult. Um, I put it above the Wii Free Men if that helps at all, but I'm open to whatever you guys really think in the rankings because I I really am just coming in here at the very, very end. So. I think I'd probably agree with you, though, because I remember I, I was very down on the We Free Men when I first read it, which is far, far before like we did Radio Morpork. Um, I remember thinking it was very, like... 
I don't know, just there, there was a lot of deus ex machinas happening, on, uh, happen, especially at the end of that, which I know we were saying how the uh, Tiffany getting her power from the chalk is very, um, like the symbolic meaning behind that is very admirable, but I just remember it resolved things a bit too cleanly for my liking. I think I the main thing that's uh, inspiring me to say this is the fact that like for all the flaws that the Shepherd's Crown has, I'm finding them easy to forgive. So... And and because it's got such a uh, such great ideas behind it, yeah, I'd probably put it above free, We Free Men. I I feel like I'd argue for We Free Men going above just because it feels more complete, and uh, I certainly enjoyed it much more when we done it than than you did, Steve. However, I'm kind of I'm, I'm outvoted two to one here, and because it's been a while since we read, read We Free Men, I'm not very confident in my ability to coherently argue why <laughs> I think it's better, other than like a vaguely remembered feeling of. You know, of, oh, like, oh, these cool mythic stuff about, like, elves taking children and Tamlin, and I love that kind of stuff, you know, which isn't going to make for a coherent or convincing argument. So I'm happy for to, to, uh, the fairness and for it to go above We Free Men. So then, does it go above or below Thief of Time? All right. Yeah, I'd like to, I'd like to hear Rose's response to this. Guys. Thief of Time. I'm sorry, I haven't listened to the episode on Thief of Time anytime recently, so I, I don't really know how to argue with the errors that you found in it. But I love Thief of Time. I love Thief of Time for having Susan in it, for having the relationship with the clockmaker and the split between the clockmaker and the mo that's such an interesting idea. And the auditors, and you get one of the auditors actually embodied in human form. And Thief of Time is the one with the really funny signs where they like glitch the auditor's brains. Do not pet the elephant, and there's no elephant. Like, you know what I find is... really funny about all that, right? The funniest what? thing about all the reasons you gave, you left out the main characters, <laughs> which was our hugest argument against Thief of Time. They're exceptionally dull. Is that not the clockmaker and the monk? No. Oh, well, I love, I, li- I like Jeremy. I like the neurotic kind of half-mad clockmaker. Yeah, who counts all of his spoons in his drawer. Je- yeah. Je- Jeremy is a semi-antagonist. Lob- his other side is, is sort of like dull, like he feels like a throwback to the kind of very early one-off Discworld protagonist, okay. you know, um, and and I really don't like Lucy, like that that was one thing that like brought that book down for me where it, it, be, because like I, I get the feeling like the book seems to love him, like it's mm. like this guy's the coolest <laughs> motherfucker going. Um, He's really inconsistent I, I, as well. It's funny, I, I I can't remember whether I said this during the episode, but I, I definitely said on Twitter around the same time that like a lot of people make comparisons with like um, uh, Discworld and Doctor Who, and I'm a huge Doctor Who fan, and particularly the death stuff. Like it's like he travels around in space and time and has a granddaughter named Susan, you know. Like <laughs> so, and, and I remember thinking, oh, Tifa Time feels like the Doctor Whoiest Discworld book, but Lucy feels like how people who don't like Doctor Who think the doctor comes across <laughs> or how he comes across to even me as a fan of the show in like the episodes I don't like where I'm just like this is something that is someone the script is just taking on fate that we're going to love much more I think it's the coolest person in the room that is true having said all that I would agree with you I would put Tifa Time above this because I think Tifa Time like while, while there's frustrations there it still realises a lot of really cool ideas like all of the stuff with the auditors and the horsemen particularly with Lady Lejeune as, as the auditor coming to life like those are not only brilliant ideas but brilliant ideas that are seen true to a definitive and satisfying end in a way that 
you know, for circumstances beyond its control, but ultimately, look, we're still judging it here in a way that those things aren't in, you know, in, in this book. Mm. And when we think of what, what, I, what I mentioned earlier about just that, like, exhilarating, nerdy kind of joy of seeing these big fantasy battles, like throwdowns that, that you know, you, you don't always get in this world, but that we, we've all gotten from some area of fantasy. Tifa time delivers on that much better. Like, like that kind of, like, the horsemen fighting a million billion auditors <laughs> at the edge of existence and a giant vat of chocolate and the whole scene when like time has become broken is like brilliant and vivid and will always stick with me whereas here that final battle between the witches and the elves is kind of something where you just think well i'm glad they're all here you know <laughs> but i i wish this had been grander in some way so i would be happy to to have this below thief of time so what you're saying basically is thief of time is the avengers and uh the shepherd's crown is the avengers age of ultron (laughs) (laughs) um i mean in in the very broad sense of one being better than like i'm just thinking of the Uh, final fight well i I don't want to get too too much into it Uh, yeah I, i would think age of ultron's issue isn't so much with the kind of <laughs> grand fight scenes so it's just with some other stuff like the, the film begins with like Tony Stark's hubris leads him to build a super powerful AI that the other heroes don't trust and this almost dooms humanity <laughs> Tony Stark revolves problem by building another super powerful AI <laughs> but this one's good um, you know, and that's Jeffrey and Mephistopheles yeah he's kind of like vision I suppose you know like that. that's the sort of like whatever wait this isn't the, the, the you know mcu podcast but <laughs> yeah um that, that i think is like the the issue i had with that and the other thing is thief of time for me is one of my favorites because of the comedy in it and comedy isn't to be found a lot in the shepherd's crown yes and yeah that's, that's a good point. for me the disc world it's just so brilliantly the humor is built into everything and thief of time is a great example of it and the shepherd's crown just feels like it's missing it to me i know that's down to the time constraints and that it's not really finished but at the same time i have to compare one of my favorite funniest books of the disc world to this one and i have to say my favorite funniest book of the disc world wins for me are you sure <laughs> yeah <laughs> you, you you still you still uh holding out there too. well i mean it doesn't matter now because i've been voted out i'm i'm a little on the fence if i'm being honest because I, it's funny because when I finished it, I was quite down in the Shepherd's Crown. But after we've discussed it, I, I, I feel very different about it. I think it's a, a really incredible book in hindsight. But um, and Thief of Time, I'm still thinking of the flaws. But now that you guys have said some of the, like you said, I think we said the, uh, the ending, like the the fight scene of the Horseman versus the Auditors, is one of the most satisfying final conflicts in any of the Discworld books. It also has one of my favourite reveals of uh, Chaos, uh, Mr. Soak being Chaos, which I'll always remember as my favourite moment in those books. So, um, yeah. I think actually, while I wouldn't be mad on it as a book, despite uh, citing those those aspects of it I did enjoy, I think Thief of Time is one of the few... uh, I mentioned this before about... um, I mentioned to you, Steve, I don't know whether you're familiar with Rose, but with Agatha Christie, the, the writer behind like Miss Marple and Hercule Poirot, mm-hmm. during, during World War II, when she wasn't sure whether she was going to survive through the war, she wrote a final Poirot book. Obviously did survive the war and went on writing them for like 30 years. And then when she died, they released that one that she had already written as the kind of like, you know, end one. So it's sort of she had a, 
she obviously didn't have any idea in her head of how long this will go on for, but had a pre-written endpoint. And I think if you were to pick a Discord book that were you to say, okay, like for just a perfect feeling of a book ending and bringing the thing to a close, what one do you wish she kept in the vault and then released to be like the capstone to the Discworld? Despite like not being crazy about Teeth of Time, I think that would make for a fitting finish because it does like it is so like grand and hectic and brings together so much stuff. The other two I could think of in that regard are Nightwatch because it's fucking deadly. <laughs> And also kind of brings volumes full circle and it's all about time and growing up and so on. And The Last Hero, which has these really elegaic tones of like, and there's a, a real sense of The Last Hero of like the early disc world of sword and sorcery craziness being left behind by modernity and that being kind of an inevitable thing and maybe a good thing, but there's something we're losing there as well. So I think like Tifa Time... Nightwatch your last hero had you know had we end up in a situation where he finishes Shepherd's Crown to the best of his ability that comes out and then like a year after they're like oh this this is the kind of pre-prepared endpoint uh, those are the three I think that would have made a really perfect finish although he obviously never intended any of them as, as endings because as far as I'm aware they all predate when he would have known about his Alzheimer's so he wouldn't have been thinking about endings at those stages. Mm, yeah, I certainly agree. I also think uh, Reaper Man could theoretically have been a good ending, just with the wonderful ending between um, Death and oh, the old woman who he works for, whose name escapes me now. Uh, but I thought that would have been a very poetic ending just to have like Death and her just, you know, walking off into the, the into eternity. Uh, I know it doesn't quite end like like quite quite like that, but it could be tweaked a little bit. But um, yeah, so going back, I think I'm probably going to agree with you. I think this probably doesn't uh, topple Thief of Time, but um, definitely better than We Free Men. Yeah, cool. Well, wow, that that brings so close. I feel like we should have said the biggest argument for the last episode <laughs> in here another hour, but but. This <laughs> Maybe, maybe it's the, the calm weaving presence of Rose that has helped uh, me and Steve arrive at something we can agree on without a lot of to and fro and Okay Colin which co-star do you like best me or Rose go <laughs> uh, Ashling when she was on the pyramids episode that's fair that's fair can't argue um, oh so so one question I did, I did with Ashley so I'm, I, I, I read a lot so like I, I haven't been throughout the course of the podcast it's not like been only limited to reading Discworld but it has certainly taken up a lot of kind of reading space for me and as as uh, rewarding as this whole experience has been there's also a nice sense of freedom that comes with you know not feeling like there's something I have to read any you know anymore so what are you guys reading now that we finished Discworld? Um, I haven't really been reading anything. I've been too busy with work, if I'm being honest. Um, I, I just, you know, usually I just uh, look at like apps on my phone or I'm studying Japanese, one or the other. So, yeah, I am planning on um, reading. There's a book of Japanese ghost stories that I got a copy of. It's been translated into English. I'm trying to remember the name of it and it is escaping me. My, I don't know how I've done a podcast for this long considering how awful my memory is, but I just, yeah, I can't think. Of it. It'll come to me halfway through Rose's answer. It, it isn't the woman with the floating head or something, is it? It's, it's, part, it's a collection of ghost stories and um, yeah, I think that's one of them. She, that's a famous Japanese yokai and uh, yeah, I think she features somewhere in it. Got like pages in notebooks where I just note down 
that sounds like an interesting book. I want to read that. And one of them was quite on collection of Japanese. Stuff. That was it. Sorry, right? quite on. That was the name of the book. It's it came out in the fifties. It's like a one of the pillars of uh, Japanese horror and. I don't know if he's called Japanese literature, but Japanese horror, it is like the book. So that's the thing that I'm looking forward to reading next. How about you? Cool. It's really hard to say because I have a pile of books on a to-be-read shelf on my bookshelf. And I have a stack of uh, Goodreads lists just marked to-be-read. And there's about 50 on that as well. It's ridiculous. But I've been working my way through a short series by Martha Wells, um, the Murderbot series. It's a murder. Yeah. um, Amazing. Comedy sci-fi sort of. It's about this uh, AI who is, who refers to itself as a murder bot. It's a sentient sentient AI with a dark past um, because of its programming. And it's basically just traveling around the galaxy, trying to figure out its own backstory. And it joins these teams and it tries to associate with people, but it, it, it kind of finds the people to be a little bit, they overload it a little bit. It doesn't really like being touched. It doesn't really like spending a lot of time around the people. It tends to retreat back to its own room and watch a lot of media, which is soap operas in space. And it's just, it's very, very funny. And they're very short reads as well. So I've read a couple of those and I'll, I plan on finishing the, that short series. And then I'll tackle the giant pile of books that I keep buying and not finishing. <laughs> We've all been there, Rose. Yeah, We've I, all been there. <laughs> yeah, I've got my bookshelves here beside me, and I think there's some of them like staring balefully out at me from their spines. So I'm like, "Well, haven't you read me?" <laughs> so what's the next column? But I'm I'm reading at the moment. I'm reading uh, Mexican Gothic by I'm going to get her name wrong. It's either Sylvia Moreno Garcia or Sylvia Garcia Moreno, uh, which is kind of like a gothic novel come like weird Lovecraftian stuff going on in the background really really enjoying it uh it's it's kind of yeah I, I, uh, it's interesting because the it's set in 1950s mexico and the protagonist is this socialite and she's someone who's so ultra conscious of how she comes across to people in like the way she dresses the way she speaks with them the way she can kind of like get the measure of conversations you know and like adjust how she acts accordingly that i just find really interesting that that being the, for want of a better term, the kind of weapon or special skill of your protagonist in this, like horror novel, essentially being like that they're like really kind of like adept and charming socially. I, I just think is an interesting way of doing it. So yeah, I'm, I'm reading that and nonfiction wise, I should try juggle nonfiction and fiction at once. And I'm reading The Disconnect by Roshin Kybert, which is a series of essays about the internet, which. I'd sort of put off reading because I thought like this is going to be great but really depressing but it, it's actually weirdly comforting like it is bleak and, and heavy in, in the you know the way in which the incredibly nuanced intelligent way in which it parses the, the implications of what the internet has done to our, our social lives our working lives and so on but I don't know there's just like a like a lightness and a deftness of, of the prose that makes it really easy to read and just this weird sense of a fellow feeling that even like it's not like she's promising any happy endings or easy answers but just reading it and feeling like oh yeah me too you know when, when, when you're reading it is somehow more comforting than you would think you know you think when you whatever get off twitter for a while and your head's just melted the last thing you want to read is someone like intelligently picking apart the horrible implications of all of this but it's somehow weirdly comforting I've actually heard great things about both of those, so good shout. Mm, I, I haven't heard of the disconnect, but Mexican Gothic, I've heard fantastic things about. So yeah, I really want to read that at some stage. That writer has a new book out, um, maybe this month or next month. 
the beautiful ones. So I, I need to read Mexican Gothic and then get on to the next one. Because she's supposed to be fantastic. Well, it'll go right to the top of my list of books that share the same name as a suede. <laughs> um, don't know if there are any others. Probably a book called Animal Nitrate. Uh, but Or Stay Together. Almost definitely is. But uh, yeah, that, that, one's, that one's at the top for now. I've also just finished a really bonkers book that's really influential called The Morning of the Magicians, which was written after... Uh, Hang on, we'll just wait till I read you the back of this. <laughs> so, it was written after World War Two, and it's all about, like, you know, that kind of early mysticism that informed a lot of the 60s, like this weird convergence of, like, scientific breakthroughs with earlier mystical stuff, and people weren't sure where the barriers were. So, you have questions asked on the back, like, where are the masterminds behind the great civilizations of Central and South America from Mars? Definitely. <laughs> what connects the ancient art of alchemy and modern atomic physics? Well, loads, obviously. <laughs> Was Hitler, during his mystical trances, in touch with the, quote, unknown master? Yes! <laughs> um, but it, it's sort of interesting to read in the modern context, because it's one that hurts out a lot, and obviously we live in a kind of a world now that's really been poisoned by conspiracy theories and by these crazy beliefs but i i so i wondered like reading this i'm like i'm i'm reading it just i i approach it just purely from like even if i don't believe it i love all of that nazi esoteric stuff like you know oh they were really trying to find some super continent super weapon and you know like i, I just like I, as a kind of feast for the imagination rather than an actual historical assessment <laughs> i like that kind of stuff but I, I sort of approached the book warily, like thinking this is going to leave a bad taste in the mouth, knowing where all of this type of thinking has led us, like towards QAnon and the, the crazy, like, you know, 5G, uh, like anti mask people that we see rampaging around now. But there's kind of, like, there's sort of like just this innocence and joy about, like, the way in which they write that makes it much more palatable. It's sort of like when you listen to, like, Led Zeppelin and you think, out of these came all these shitty bands doing 10 minute drum solos but when you go back and listen to the thing that inspired those bands like ah oh, it's, it's still rocks you know <laughs> um, it's kind of like that with this there's just such a quality of like kind of I don't know like, like innocent enthusiasm about it that it's, even though you can draw the line between them and like hateful conspiracy theorists it feels like they're very far away from it like it almost feels you know yeah uh, you, you feel churlish to, to like to hold them responsible for it. Now they do get really, like, there is parts where you're like ah here, like there's one bit where it's like, was the ancient mystical continent of Numenor actually real? I'm like, hang on, I'm sure I've heard that before. And the footnote is like, see Professor Tolkien of Oxford, <laughs> and it's obviously written at a time before Lord of the Rings came out. So it's like you can just cite him as an academic <laughs> uh, with, with like conflating his like actual academic work on linguistics with these like fantasy stories he's writing. But I was like, ah lads, like that that might have fooled people in the fifties, but you're not fooling me there. <laughs> or there's or there's bits where you'll just be reading this quote and you'll be like, wow, this is really interesting and you get to the end of it and you're like hang on who are they quoting here and you go back and like, they, they never say they just presented <laughs> this quote to us so scholar, from a scholarly point of view it's completely spurious and I would understand if people were to read it with the, the view of like this kind of thing has, has left a horrible legacy on the world but I really enjoyed it just for that like the crazy ideas it throws at you and that weird quality of kind of almost like 
yeah, like schoolboyish expository enthusiasm about the whole thing. Like, hey, all ideas are up for grabs. They're all out there. Let's let's look at them. Gosh. That sounds interesting. All right. I'd love to give that a go at some stage. <laughs> Although I am going to edit that like uh, spiel you had to start because at the very start you said, I love that like uh, Nazi stuff, which I'm just going to have somewhere. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, that, that and a bit earlier about me chiding you for discriminating against men. You can really make a, like a cut of this audio <laughs> paints me in a very bad light. <laughs> Yeah, that's God. Um, yeah, so this this is this is the end of the journey through Discworld, friends, and uh, I, I couldn't have taken it with two better people, and I hope that's how the listeners feel as well. To to all of them, thank you so much for coming with us uh, along this journey. I've discovered and rediscovered so much about Discworld along the way. It's renewed my my love of it, even when we've been critiquing it. So I don't know. I hope it's been half as rewarding as it has for me uh, as it is for all of you Mm. yeah i i also want to thank both of you guys here and everyone listening because it has been wonderful wonderful journey um i any excuse to reread terry pratchett has been great i remember i i read i read through at the time the entire series twice and i thought i'll probably never read through him again because i know i love these books but i just don't have the time and then when you came to me saying would you like to do this it's like Oh well, yeah, <laughs> that'd be great. <laughs> and it was also a great excuse to finally read the books that I never did read. Um, this one included. So uh, yeah, it w- it's been really fantastic. I've always looked forward to it, and I'm going to be sad to to finish up. I couldn't agree more. Thank you both for all of the episodes. Thank you, especially Colin, for starting this entire thing and being the only one that's been there for the whole thing start to finish i know i was there at the start and then i dropped off and then steve took over and i've been back a couple of times but column from the beginning to the end fair play to you yeah. and thank you everybody for listening um it's been fantastic been present throughout like a benign mole it's just too much trouble <laughs> to get rid of it uh, <laughs> oh you know to 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 quote bob dylan i got a head full of ideas that's driving me insane i got like notebooks full of ideas for like stories or podcasts and things that are never ever realized and it's bringing them out into the real world with real people that realizes that you know if you guys weren't up for this i'd still be talking like six years after conceiving of the idea of like oh i'd love to do a Discworld podcast sometime in fact by this stage i'd probably be put off by all the good ones that already exist but it's it's come to life because um we've all been up for this journey so yeah, it's great. So, listeners, friends, there remains not to say, but goodbye and good luck. Goodbye, everyone. Thank you for listening. Thank you. Bye, everybody. Attention to the man behind the curtain. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody thinks the weather.